You know who I can do without? I can do without the people in the video store. Which ones? All of them. This is Massive Late Fee with Mike and Mark. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Massive Late Fee. Uh, we've had a big week here. I thought about how to start the show for a little bit. And I think that the most appropriate way to start would be to list some of the important people who have birthdays today. For instance, today is Johnny Carson's birthday, or would be Johnny Carson's birthday. Uh, Weird Al Yankovic's birthday is today. Amelia Clark. And our very own co-host, Mike's birthday is today. Happy birthday, Mike. Thank you. Now, in addition to that, have you done anything good for your birthday? Uh, my wife got me a lot of nice gifts, uh, some of which I'm drinking right now. <laughs> That's always the best. Um, we've had a pretty big week, Mike, as far as uh, Twitter and, and Facebook. The blogosphere? Yeah. Yeah, we've been popular on the blogosphere uh, this week. Uh, last week, we talked a little about uh, Norm MacDonald, one of our uh, favorite comedians, or our favorite comedian, and uh, he's probably listening tonight, so hello, Norm, sir. How are you? Hello. And uh, we, uh, Norm, uh, found our podcast, you know, that he was in, that he, we included him in the tweet. He found it. He retweeted it. He gave us a pretty glowing review. Uh we definitely noticed a uptick in viewership and yes. Facebook subscribers from it. So thank you, uh, Mr. McDonald, and on his birthday too. Yeah, now that uh, we were uh, noticed by Norm McDonald, we have nothing else to accomplish. So this is the last episode. Exactly. No, I was thinking that uh, you know, ever since I was little, I dreamed of Norm McDonald noticing me. And retweeting something that uh, that I've done or, or giving me accolades, which he did. I remember, uh, you were eight years old and you're like, you know, when they invent Twitter. Yeah. Of course, you know, I also uh, always dreamed of having a three-way with Salma Hayek and uh, Scarlett Johansson. And lucky me, look which one of my dreams came true. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't really know who Scarlett I, I know the name Scarlett Johansson. I couldn't pick her out of a lineup, I don't think. She's in uh, the a lot of she's Black Widow in the Marvel movies. She was in that. You're about to list a bunch of movies I have not seen. <laughs> do you remember that movie? Now, I know you haven't seen it, but do you remember that movie? I think it was called. I, I can't. Maybe maybe it was called Salt. I think it was the one where she uh, Angelina Jolie. Maybe isn't that one? Oh yeah, then it's the different one. But it's there's. there's <laughs> She did a movie where she used uh, 100% of her brain, and it allowed oh, her... Uh, what's that called? That uh, that Bradley Cooper guy? Is that it? No, that's Limitless, which is another one where he uses 100% of his brain. <laughs> which is the stupidest thing in the world, because we know that that's not true anymore. That's true. I mean, sports teams regularly give 110% of their brain. <laughs> But uh, yeah, Morgan Freeman was in it, and uh, he was talking. He was talking. No idea what you're talking about. Yeah, well, I can't remember the name of the movie, but it was terrible. Is it powder? (laughs) (laughs) 
Which was written and directed by a convicted pedophile. Right. Now, speaking of that, the uh, that movie always reminded me of K-Pack with uh, Kevin... Uh... Speaking of convicted pedophiles. <laughs> right. Oh, Allegedly. not convicted. But anyway, so... Uh, yeah, so we've had a, a big week here. Uh, again, anyone that wants to interact with us, you can find us on Twitter... At Massive Late Fee, we have a Facebook page, Massive Late Fee. I broke down this week, Mike, and, and got our us our own Gmail account, so I think I have 12 now or something like that. But you, if you want to send us uh, any love or hate mail, I'd love to read hate mail, you can send it to at Massive, or massive late fee at gmail.com. Speaking of hate mail, we got a lot of uh, negative feedback from the Swedes this week. <laughs> yeah, the... Uh, well, you know, I, I have no respect for those people anyway, because they came into villages from my ancestors and raped and pillaged, and they gave us Bill Faber, whatever the hell is his stupid last name is. So, you know, I have no respect for him anyway. M-O-O-N, that spells Bill Fabergagee. <laughs> so we'll start with the news today. I see that they are looking to reboot the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise using the writers from Deadpool, which just seems like a great combination to me. I haven't seen those movies. <laughs> well, I saw Deadpool. I'll... I saw the Deadpool movies, but not the Pirates of the Caribbean. The the first Pirates of the Caribbean is is good. After that, they get pretty bad the i think the pirates of the caribbean proves the axiom that a little bit of johnny depp is enough because <laughs> it gets way too much johnny depp in those movies so i heard about these movies from billy ocean he called them the caribbean uh pirates caribbean <laughs> yeah, caribbean yeah. which one you know what i love about uh about that song is that he makes no choice there are two ways to pronounce that word, as you know, Caribbean or Caribbean. And when he sings that song, he does not ma- he doesn't make that choice at all. If you listen to that song, he says Caribbean queen. But yeah, they're but yeah. they're doing a uh, they're doing a um, reboot of the genre or the the films. Uh, no uh. reported release date yet. Or anything, or who's going to be involved. But if it's a reboot, I'm assuming they're moving away from Johnny Depp. I know the movies have been popular for Disney. And I assume, you know, uh, Deadpool was a, a Fox product. And I assume now that Disney is buying Fox and they're going to own Deadpool. That's probably part of the reason why they're looking to do that. The, but that it strikes me as a situation where the company has said, "Hey, these guys were successful. Let's jam them into whatever franchise we can find." Um, what so, are those movies even about? Like, isn't it like he is he a dead guy? I don't really understand. In the first movie, which is the C- Curse of the Black Pearl, yeah, it turns out that they were all pirates, and uh, uh, one Stellan. Stellan Skarsgård, I think it's Stellan Skarsgård, one of the Skarsgårds, speaking of Swedes, the dirty Swedes, is in uh, in that movie and he plays one of the bootstrap bill. And it turns out that they were cursed uh, and they're dead, 
and in the moonlight, you can see that there are skeletons in the daytime. They appear normal. And yeah, so it's kind of it's sort of about that. They're adventure type, um, adventure type movies, like swashbuckling kind of throwback type movies. The, the first one is fun and funny. But like I said, after that, they get they get they push the line way too far and they go way over the top, in my opinion. The other uh, big news today is that Terminator 6, Just What the World Needs, another Terminator film, is moving into the release date that Wonder Woman 2 was going to occupy. Uh, Wonder Woman 2's sequel um, moved, or Wonder Woman's sequel moved back to 2020, and now Terminator 6 is going to move into the, I believe it's November 2019 time slot. That's another movie. That, talk about one of the movies we're going to talk the main thing we're going to talk about tonight is the Halloween movie, which the Halloween movie's timeline is completely fucked and Terminators might be almost as bad of what they've done with the timeline. I know it's hard to to run a time a movie that that is heavily relying on time travel, but I have I have no desire to see this. I know you saw the first two. Did you see any of the other sequels? I saw a lot of them, unfortunately. Um, let's see. The third one is pretty bad. The yeah, fourth yeah. one, I think that was set in the future. Is that Salvation? Yes. The lighting director did a terrible job on that, I've heard. <laughs> um, that, that one's not good. The opening scene is just ridiculous. So the whole movie, I mean, in a movie where uh, robots come from the future to kill people, the opening scene is ridiculous, and it doesn't involve robots at all. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? Let's see. The one after that, uh, is that the, wait, I'm thinking of Terminator 3. What's, what's after that one? Oh, no, that's, that's the one that they tried to redo the entire thing where it's like, uh, I don't know, Arnold was in it probably. Yeah, Genesis yeah, Gen- with a Y. Yeah, yeah, I, I barely remember that movie. It was really bad, but my birthday, uh, co-celebrator, uh, Emily Clark was in that. Yes, she was. She- I'd say she's a terrible actress. She's not great, and and I saw. I know you didn't see the solo movie. I she was in the hand. Yeah, I, she, I don't think she's good in Game of Thrones, and she's uh, was not good in Terminator at all. The thing she did before Game of Thrones that I saw a bit of was this terrible sci-fi movie. That's about her acting level, I think. Mm-hmm. Oh, I agree. She's not good in solo either, in my opinion. But uh, yeah, the uh, Genesis was a complete mess. Uh, Salvation wasn't good either. Three wasn't good. They they did two good movies. And I'm not as high on Terminator 2 as a lot of people are. I still think Terminator 1 is... The original Terminator is the, the better film, in my opinion. But uh, I can say that Terminator 2 is a good movie, at least. Yeah, I'd say Terminator 1 was definitely a better movie, but I enjoyed Terminator 2 a lot more. Yeah. Like... For the time period, the CGI effects were like amazing. Like when he comes out of the ground, and like you know, just like the T one thousand in general. I don't understand how they can make a movie like that in like ninety five or whatever it was, and have it look so good to make like a movie like like the Matrix. I love the Matrix movie, but there's parts that my friend Matt pointed out to me where it's just like the effects are so bad. Oh yeah, yeah. 90, like especially 90, in Revolutions, what? it's just terrible. Or the second one, whatever that was. I don't know. Yeah, Revol. Uh... I don't know. It's not revolutions, but it's that's the third one. The second one, it's just not like when he's like the Agent Smith is fighting people with the bar. You can see the bar like clearly bend at certain points, mm-hmm. 
and Matt pointed out like the faces are just like terrible. It's the, the I don't understand it because they have like a huge effects budget for that one. Yeah, I don't get it either. Ninety one. That's when Terminator Two came out. Oh wow! Yeah, I mean, I I don't know what it is. James Cameron just has technology like locked down when it comes to, like making a good looking movie. Yeah, he's very good at that. And the, the even the original Terminator, the few glimpses that we see of the future, that movie was extremely low budget, and they used pretty much all you know they used completely practical effects, but the the world feels so lived in. Everything seems so real. It's in a ama- it's amazing the job that they did with such a limited budget on that first film. Yeah, and I'm gonna. I think there was some stop motion too, especially like near the end. Mm-hmm. And then, you know uh, what else was in term- the original Terminator? Uh, Lance Hendrickson. That's right. You know the uh, the story about how he was originally going to be the Terminator. No, I've never heard that. Yeah, they originally they wanted him to look like a normal guy, and the funny part about that is the first choice. At least I think it was the first choice was O.J. Simpson. I've heard that one. Yeah. But nobody could, could picture him as a murderer at the time. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so then, like Lance Hendrickson, he was—he's in—he's uh, in Aliens as well. Like he's like a—he was for a while at least a uh, James Cameron regular. Yeah, oh yeah. And oh yeah. He was also in Near Dark, which was uh, directed by Catherine Bigelow, who I think was married to um, James Cameron at the time. I could be wrong. That's right. But yeah, they were gonna have him, and it just like so, it'd just be like a normal guy. But then when they switched to Arnold, like all even like the Terminators, they show in like the future scenes are all like, these like big ripped like German guys. Mm-hmm. It is a weird thing because you know it's he's supposed to be when you look at it from the logic of the movie he's supposed to be unassuming and this giant austrian guy is certainly not unassuming but he was effective for what the movie basically was which not a slasher movie per se but it's you know it's a horror it's a suspense. Yeah, yeah. But yeah it's kind of a horror type movie or a suspense movie he's an unstoppable killing force and he had that imposing nature that really sells that. Oh yeah, for sure. And another uh, great James Cameron regular, uh, Bill Paxton's in at the beginning for like five seconds. Yeah, oh, I love Bill Paxton. Yeah, he was uh, great in uh, True Lies, which I, I'm sure I'll mention later when we talk about Jamie Lee Curtis and Halloween because I love that movie, True Lies. The uh, mm-hmm. James Cameron, like I don't know how you classify it, action adventure. That's a great movie too. And there's a there's a scene in that where she's pretending to be a, a double agent or, or I can't remember exactly how it goes, but he knows that it's her. That is- she doesn't, he's sitting in the shadow. She doesn't know it's him. And she does this dance and she's, you know, like dancing. She's holding the, uh, the bedpost and she falls. She really fell. Like that wasn't a script. <laughs> and if you see, if you look really closely, you can see Arnold react. I think Arnold is a underrated comic actor too. Like I know it was really heavily panned when it came out, but Last Action Hero, I, I like that movie. I could watch it, you know, whenever it's on. I like that movie a lot too. And I agree. I think he he understands comic timing. I think he needs a subtle touch though. Like if you were in a movie like uh, the Eric Stoner favorite uh, Junior. Mm-hmm. Um, no, but uh, like a little bit of comedy combined with action, he's pretty good. A, a funny part of that scene you mentioned is that scene shows that he's a complete sociopath. <laughs> I mean, what, what, what was his end plan there? Like, he's like, his wife thinks he's like some weird French guy and he's like, you know, about to seduce her. And then he's like, hey, it's me. Let's get, you know, hot romance. Yeah, yeah. What yeah. was it? I don't understand what, what 
the terrorist breaking in was the best possible scenario for that scene. Yeah, and that's pretty bad when you've made a plan with your wife and terrorists breaking in is the is the best possible outcome you can hope for. Right. But yeah, that that it's it is weird. Cameron has some things like that that kind of don't make logical sense in some of his movies. A lot of filmmakers do, but he's good at. It's fun to talk about post, you know, especially years later and having watched it a few times, thinking about it a lot. But it's one of those things when you're first watching the movie, he he sells it on you. I remember. Oh, remember, for sure. I remember uh, Spielberg famously when he was doing Jaws. Uh, Peter Benchley helped write the script. He wrote the novel, and he was on set for a lot of the movie. He played a reporter in in one scene, just a bit scene. But the movie ends, or I mean, the book ends in a much more realistic way, where the shark basically dies of attrition. They stab it a ton of times, and eventually it loses blood and it dies. And Spielberg knew that that wouldn't make for a very satisfying cinematic ending. So he decided to do the thing where, you know, they, it gets the uh, oxygen tank in its mouth. He shoots it. It blows up. And Peter Benchley said to Steven Spielberg, this is ridiculous. No one is going to believe this. This is the most over the top ending I've ever seen. And Spielberg said to him, if they've come with me this far, they'll believe it. Oh, yeah. I've heard that story, too. Not a, not a big fan of Steven Spielberg in general. No, I know you're not. Like some of his early movies, I like Jaws is one of my favorite movies. When when he works when he, in certain genres and at certain periods of his career, I like a lot of his work. A lot of his work later on, uh, you know, after Schindler's List, and some even some of the stuff in between uh, was not is is not the best in my opinion. Like I don't like Ready Player One. I I don't know if Steven Spielberg's made a movie that I've liked in a while. I saw The Post. And that was basically just like nominate us for an Oscar, the movie. Oh, is 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 that the wait? Is that the one about? Is that what it's called? The post? Is that the one about? Um, is that with um, Michael? Uh, what's his name? Keaton? No, that. What's this? What's this one about? I'm, I'm thinking of the one. It's what was that with uh, Michael Keaton? It was about like the Boston like pre scandal. It's called Spotlight. Okay, yeah, that's not it then. The Post is with Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks, and it's about the Pentagon Papers during uh, Vietnam. Uh, okay. Yeah, I, I haven't seen that one. It's 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 fine. It's very it's boring. It's it's ev- Spielberg does everything correctly. The acting is everything that you would think it would be from Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks, but it's ultimately dull. There's no, there's nothing new. There's nothing innovative. It's a dull story. That's fair. Again, in my opinion, but that's what this podcast is about. Our opinions. So since we are the official podcast or the official entertainment podcast of Michigan sports and entertainment, uh, and there's not a lot of news today because around this time is usually a pretty slow news time for entertainment news we figured we'd talk a little bit about uh the world series now it's a dodgers red sox rematch they're playing game one right now i think the red sox are up three to two uh you kind of spoiled that for me i had uh, paused it but they were up two to one last i uh, looked <laughs> sorry with uh, with matt kemp of all people hitting a home run 
Oh, on your birthday too. I'm sorry. Okay, I won't okay. say any more about. Any more what's about no, it's fine. I had to pause, and I mean, whatever. I mean, I guess I'll fast forward to that part. Well, it's only the fourth inning right now. A lot can happen. Lock can happen. When I was watching, it was only the second. <laughs> Just why would that not prove? <laughs> but uh, yeah, so what? What do you think of the matchup, and who do you think has the advantage? I think the Boston Red Sox are just a completely loaded team in like every aspect. They're pitching. I mean, basically most of their team are the best Tigers players from the last five years. Mm-hmm. And Rick Porcello is also on the team. <laughs> yeah, he is. Ground ball Porcello. I mean, they even have they have, you know, Dave Dombrowski. They have, I mean, I mean who do you think who do you think is gonna win and who are you rooting for? Are they the same team? Well, I don't have a huge rooting interest. I suppose if I had to get locked down, I would probably say the Dodgers because they ha- they've won they've they the Red Sox have won more recently, I suppose. But and the Dodgers seem to to keep getting close and not being able to to get over. But I think the Red Sox probably will win. They like you said Dombrowski's done a great job there like he did here. Uh, and they have, I mean, they're a machine in, in how they play and what they can do. And the big the big part about them is their bullpen is so important to not only this series, but the way they play games. Because if you're down when the seventh inning rolls around, then you're probably not going to beat them. And if they're down when the seventh inning rolls around, they still have a chance to come back against you. That's when you can shorten a game to to six innings, when you basically give a team six innings to try to get up on you so that they can win. It makes it very difficult. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I mean, there's, you know, I mean, out of the two teams, I want the Red Sox win because, first of all, like any uh, red-blooded American, I hate L.A. teams. (laughs) The only player I really like on either of the teams is J.D. Martinez because, you know, obviously he played here for Detroit for uh, a few years. And I just, I just, he seems like a good guy. You know, he came from like being cut by the Astros, who were bad at the time. Yep. yep. And now he's like a $20 million a year player. He basically earned everything he's, you know, gotten as far as like, you know, when everyone else thought his career was over. Oh, yeah. I, I like J.D. a lot, too. I think, I think that was the one that hurt probably the most, maybe even more than Verlander. Because I think, yeah, Ver- I think Verlander's not a likable person, I don't think. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't know about him personally, but I know that I think everyone was pretty content that it was time for him to move on. It was time for us to move on from him. But I think JD was the that trade that was the one or losing him that was the one that hurt. Oh yeah, I mean, like, uh, I mean, I understand. I'm and I'm, I'm happy whenever they trade a player where he's past his peak. I'm always happy because we're always going to get a better, you know, return. I mean, just uh, Verlander, I mean, obviously did great things here. And he's still, I mean, much to his credit, he came back as a better pitcher after he left here, which at his age is almost unheard of. Mm-hmm. Just, I mean, like, it seems like he's kind of a Weisenheimer, to use a, a term we're all fond of. <laughs> That's going to be one of the official words of the podcast. Yep, for sure. I mean, like, I mean, he, I mean, I like him as a pitcher, but he just seems like kind of like a douchebag off, off the field. I, I've only taught... Well, I probably shouldn't bring this story up, but I don't work there anymore, so who cares? Um, I only talked to him once when I was working at one of the, one of the local yeah, casinos. A casino there. That's that's good enough, I think. Yep. And one of the local casinos in Detroit. And uh, 
I mean, he seemed fine, but he did seem a little aloof, I would say, standoffish. Understandable. I mean, he's like, you know, he was like, was he rookie of the year? Yes. He, yes. he must have been, yeah, 2006. I mean, he's been like an ace pitcher, always like the best athlete on the field for the most part. I mean, he won the uh, AL uh, MVP as a pitcher. I mean, when's the last time that's happened? Yeah, it was tough to do. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, he's yeah, actually but, a great athlete and is aware of how great he is. But I mean, just like something about JD just seems humble. He might not be in person. I mean, that's kind of dumb as a professional athlete. I mean, it doesn't affect me either way what their attitude off the field is. It's just like some weird, like vague sensation. Like, oh, this is a good person. It's it's just stupid. I mean, but I don't know. I just I just something very likable about JD Martinez. No, I know where you're coming from though because. One of the things that's interesting, at least one of the things I think that's interesting about sports is that it's sort of like a soap opera for guys, kind of. There's, yeah, it's, there's... It's, it's like a drama to the highest level because like a dramatic TV show that's like, you know, a series. I mean, it's dramatic, yeah, but you know it's going to be dramatic. Whereas sports, you never know what's going to happen. I mean, you could have someone come back in the ninth inning and win the game. You know, it's just like you could never – it's like live, you know, entertainment. It's you can't beat it. Exactly. It's like you know. It's like um, uh, Willis Reed coming back, and I mean this is before our time, but it's like Willis Reed coming back in Game Seven, or Matthew Stafford getting hit in the Cleveland game and like dislocating his shoulder and saying, "I can throw the ball. That's all you need to know." And coming back in and throwing a, a touchdown pass for a comeback win. Those stories and those personalities, just the play on the field is interesting and obviously kind of one of the, the aspects that we that we tune in to watch but that's really only part of the story though the the, the storylines the personalities that kind of drama is what heightens sports to a different level so i totally see what you're saying there see i'm, I'm a little bit different than that i only care what happens on the field like i mean when they do i know like there's like a 24-hour news cycle for sports now where you have sports center like updating every five minutes about what LeBron's going to do. I mean, that stuff is kind of interesting, but to me, I mean, I only care about, I mean, I only care about, I mean, if someone's beating their wife or, you know, strangling dogs to death, I mean, I care about that. But just in general, I mean, I don't necessarily need to hear that someone donates, you know, money to charity or that sort of thing. You know, I just, I just want to see them play and play well. It's just like the height of human, you know, performance that you're able to see on a weekly basis in each various sport. Yeah, I totally agree. But I think, I think this series is going to be a good one. I have a sense that it's going to be a six or seven game series. I think the Dodgers will be able to to scratch out at least a couple wins against Boston. I don't give them a ton of chance, though, in the series like you. Yeah, I think Boston just has like, you know, hitter after hitter and pitcher after pitcher. I mean, even David Price performed pretty well in his last appearance. I mean, I just think the AL, I mean, I know there's like some controversy over the, uh, you know, the NL versus AL pitcher hitting sort of thing. Personally, I think it's stupid. Why not just have the pitcher pitch and do nothing but pitch? I mean, I don't understand why they have to hit. That's like an automatic out. It makes pitchers in the National League have a better ERA. Yeah, I know. I don't like that either. And I've talked to some baseball purists that their their biggest argument is the uh, the pitcher's a player and players are supposed to hit, but we're talking about entertainment value. You know, I I don't I don't care about seeing a pitcher bat. Pitchers are at a disadvantage. Even there are some that are decent hitters, some that are some in the history that have even been pretty good hitters. 
But pitchers don't have time in this day and age to work on hitting with everything that they're doing with pitching like they might have used to when it was more of a necessity. And it's boring to see a pitcher bat because even if they have the skill, they don't have time to work on it. They don't have time to hone it. And it's, I don't care about seeing them, you know, strike out or ground out or a lazy fly ball to the, to the outfield. I want to see the best players performing and pitchers are best when they're pitching and hitters are best when they're hitting. Oh yeah, for sure. And I mean, any like pitcher that's hitting, I mean, they're probably not going to hit well against like a Clayton Kershaw or, you know, a Chris Sale or a Justin Verlander. Yeah. The fact that it's noteworthy when they even get like a single is just shows you that they're not good hitters. Why even bother putting them on the field? Mm -hmm. No, I I, I don't. I like the designated hitter because you get to see people who are past their prime. I mean, I don't really want to see Cabrera out, you know, at first base. I mean, I know it's like the easiest position to play, but I'd rather see him taking hits. Like, do you really want to see Victor Martinez still having to catch the ball? I mean, obviously he's done now, but I mean, he couldn't have caught the ball for the last four or five years and, you know, not destroyed his knees or shortened his career. Yeah, no, I totally agree. The the DH helps elongate careers. I look at Eddie Murray and what he was able to do as a DH towards the latter part of his career. And yeah, he could have gone out and played first base, you know, a couple times, but that guy couldn't have couldn't have played first base for 154 games out of the year. You know, I know that uh that like you said first base is an easier position to play and everything, but it's still it's the knees and you you're still you're still putting a lot of pressure on those knees. You're still, you know, you still have to run and like you said, I want to see Cabrera play for you know few a few more seasons, and be, I, want be, I want to see him retire next year. Actually, do you? Well, I mean to get the money off the uh, the books for sure. Oh yeah, well that would help for sure. But I mean, if he could come back to be anywhere close to what he was, it would certainly help. But like you said, they're in a rebuilding time right now. It's not really the time. Cabrera's window to be the centerpiece of a World Series team in Detroit is sadly past. Yeah, it would basically take a miracle at this point for the Tigers to win, you know, even the AL or AL Central. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a shame because, I mean, don't get me wrong. I cr- I mean, if you can get $30 million a year for a 10-year contract, take it. Your career is limited. I mean, you're, the owners are making, you know, a multiplication of that and mm-hmm. then some. Yep. I, I, I would never, you know, I, I'm never upset when an athlete makes a huge contract. It's always, you know, good. Get the, Especially in football. I mean, oh, my God, in football, how, how long is your career? Five years at, at best? Yeah, well, I think the average is around two years. I think there are so many that, that play one oh, season. Oh, for sure. And get or they make, you know, the training, the practice squad, and then they're done after they've spent, you know, four years. And people say, oh, well, they got a free college education. But, yeah, what are, what's their major? Uh, exercise science? What are you going to do with that? Be a personal trainer? Right. There's another situation where they don't have the kind of time to study and things that, that people that aren't playing football and aren't practicing all the time, aren't training all the time, are, you know, are doing. And so, yeah, I, I, I've always agreed with you on that that I don't, people will say, well, why don't, you know, teachers should get paid $30 million a year because of the moral good or, or whatever that they put into society. Whereas that's that's what people always frame it as, as teachers are more important for the growth of society than sports is. 
And that might be true. It's certainly true of at least a percentage of teachers. However, uh, schools don't bring in a billion dollars, you know, billions of dollars a year like the NFL does. It's a, it's a, a, a matter of supply and demand. Even if, I mean, say the scenario was reversed, say like you were, a, you know, a hotshot freshman in college teacher and you were offered $20 million a year to go teach at the best school in the state. Would anyone fault a teacher for leaving and taking the money? I don't think so. Exactly. And like you said, I mean, supply and demand. The the people who make professional sports teams are the most elite athletes you'll see. I mean, it, sure, a lot of it is just chance, but I mean, it's hard work too. And I mean, if you could take, you know, if you win the lottery, that's the same sort of, you know, genetic lottery you're winning to be a professional athlete. Mm-hmm. If you win the lottery, you'd be like, oh, I don't deserve this. Of course you would. You'd take the money. Yeah, exactly. And like you said, no one makes it to, I don't care how talented you are, no one makes it to the professional level without just putting in countless 20, 30,000 hours of hard work over the course of many years. Sure, even like the most talented, like Miguel Cabrera is probably the best right-handed hitter we'll see in our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. I mean, he he was making like a million dollars a year at like 16 years old, but I mean... I mean, that's like, you know, a once-in-a-lifetime, once you know, person you'll see. You won't see 100 Miguel Cabrera's. If so, I'd be watching nothing but baseball all the time. Right. I mean, no. He's an exciting I... player. He's like a comp- incredibly gifted athlete. I mean, his uh, triple crown uh, season, you'll never see that again. No, I agree. I agree. And he's, and I, you know, I never thought he would win that triple crown because I thought he was too good of a hitter. I didn't think he'd get enough home runs because... He, he doesn't, or at least, well, I, I don't think he still does. He didn't go up there with the idea of let's hit a home run. He came up, he got up there with the idea of let's drive the ball, you know, deep, drive the ball in the gap and score some runs, get extra base hits. So I never thought that he would get enough home runs to win that triple crown. Oh, yeah, for sure. He was like a, a doubles machine. I mean, he wasn't the, he's not anywhere near the fastest guy in the field, but he hits it so far and so hard that he's going to get a double. You know, if he gets it out of the infield, that's where he's going. Mm-hmm. But then that year that he won the triple crown, he started hitting these ridiculous laser shot line drive home runs. Yeah, that was insane. I mean, that year is like, I, I don't think I'll ever see a better year from an athlete in Detroit, for sure, than that. Yeah. Yeah, that was one of the, that was a special year, for sure. All right. So now we're going to move on to one of our regular segments, where this is called One More Season. This is where we give a television show that we like One More Season to either to make things right, to fix things, or to extend something that uh, we liked. Mike, why don't you start off and and tell us what you're going to be extending? Sure. Again, as we've said before, when we've played this segment, you cannot use perfect strangers. It's just the rule. I'm sorry we can't do it. Correct. Um, See, this is kind of unfair, but um, I'm a big fan, again, of Lance Hendrickson. The the show Millennium, uh, I love that show. It was on for three seasons. I would make there be a different third season. The third season, basically, like they have like a huge like crescendo at the end of the second season. And the third season, they just completely ignored it. Mm-hmm. Not sure if you've seen it. it's a it's 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 a great show. I mean, the first season is like really moody and dark and atmospheric, and the whole time, uh, Frank uh, Black, played by Lance Hendrickson, he's a retired FBI uh, profiler, and he's getting these weird pictures from a person who's taking pictures of his house and his wife and daughter, and you know. That's kind of like a driving line throughout the entire first season. 
And then, like, each episode is like an episode of the week type thing where there's a different murderer and he's trying to figure out. Like, Frank Black, he gets, like, these kind of psychic premonitions. And he gets uh, recruited by the Millennium Group, who's a uh, group that's trying to uh, stop the end of the world as they see it. Interesting. So the, Interesting. So the first season, it's all about, you know, at the end, like, he finally finds a person who's taking these pictures. And I'm not going to spoil it for anybody who wants to watch it, if you can find it, because I can't. Yeah, I'll have to yeah, look for it. I, that's I, one I have not seen. Yeah, the second season takes on, like, you know, it's even more, like, engrossed in the mythology of the series. There's, um, of course, this all takes place before the year 2000, where it actually was relevant that you would, you know, think that 2000 is going to be the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were two groups. One of them, like, thought there was, like, a biblical prophecy that said that the world's going to end. There were a lot of, like, you know, supernatural type things, which I generally don't like, but it was done very well in the series. Um, and then, like, the Millennium Group was trying to, to stop, you know, this other faction. They wanted to release a virus that would, like, decimate the population of the Earth. And so they've Frank Black discovers that, you know, the Millennium Group actually has the virus and the um, antivirus to it, which he was injected with, you know, little to his knowledge. And then the very last episode of the second season is just amazing. Like, Frank Black's wife has the virus. She's, you know, kind of dying, and, like, he kind of walks off to the woods. And you see, like, a single gunshot, and then, like, his wife, it was his wife who walked in the woods. But then it cuts back to Frank Black, and his hair is completely white. Wow. And, wow. and then the third season... <laughs> His hair is back to normal. He has a new recruit, and he's kind of upset at the Millennium Group, but they barely, you know, kind of gloss over everything that happened before that. So it's like they build to this amazing point. Oh, and also feature the guy, uh, what's his name, Terry? He was in Lost as um, Locke, I think. Terry O'Quinn. Yeah, he's, he's great in the series, too. And he's like an adversary in the third season, but it's just like, it just if you could have made the third season and that be the final season still, but just build on what you did before, that would just probably be the best season of television i will definitely check that out um it sounds very interesting yeah there's i mean you could just look at a like i said it's mostly like a monster of the week format you could just find a various and it's just like just a dark dark series I'm, i mean chris carter must have been writing so high on the uh x files they're like okay you can do this just, no one will watch it but go ahead <laughs> oh that's good so chris carter did that too huh that's good yeah, and there was even an X Files episode after Millennium, like oh, years after Millennium had ended, that had it was called Millennium, and Lance Henderson was in it. Okay. Yes, and I mean there was just like there were some amazing episodes. It's like uh, the second season, there was like parodies, and like you know, it basically like made fun of the show itself. It was just, and then uh, everyone's favorite Charles Nelson Riley was in it as the same character he played in the X Files. Oh, Jose Chung. It was called Jose Chung's Doomsday Defense, and it was like basically there was a there was a scene where uh, he's talking about like what do you think a, thinks a profiler does, and they had Lance Henderson like you know with like a blonde dyed hair, and he's like the super upbeat guy. The whole thing was a spoof on Scientology, but it was like that episode alone is just hilarious. I yeah, as you know, I love Charles Nelson Riley. I mean, who doesn't? But uh, yeah, that sounds that sounds really good. The the one I picked for this week. Uh, and, and like you know, we said we do this every week, but the one that it's I top of strangers, I hope. No, no, I, I again had the urge to pick perfect strangers, but, but uh, I as we said last time, let Jennifer and Marianne rest. Okay, I know, I know, it's hard, it's hard though. But um, I uh, and I thought about the adventures of Briscoe County Junior, but I I remembered the um, the Fox mid nineties caveat that you know we can't we can't mess with that either 
So even uh, even I, with the Bruce Campbell role, that's still an exception. <laughs> but I went with uh, something that I wouldn't say it's similar to what you're talking about with Millennium, and it'd be hard to because I, I haven't seen it. But it is another another thing that was short lived. It was only one season. It was it had science fictiony and drama elements to it. It was a show called Flash Forward. Have you ever seen it? I've heard of that, but I've never seen it. Well, it was created by uh, Brandon Braga and David Goyer. Uh, Braga came from Star Trek, uh, and he was kind of responsible for some of the the episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation that I really didn't like, but I loved this show, and I think David Goyer might have had at least a little bit more of a hand. Brandon Braga is a little bit more of an ideas guy. But it starred uh, Joseph Fiennes, uh, Ray Fiennes' brother. John Cho was in it from Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle. And basically the... Oh, and... uh, Star Trek. Yeah. Uh, Dominic uh, Monaghan was in it too, who who played... What was his name? He was in Lost. Uh, oh, uh, oh, oh, okay. You know, I, I was thinking of a completely different person. I thought you were talking about the Dominic guy from The Wire. No, 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 no. But, but yeah, I, I, I know you're. I've, I've only seen a little bit of Lost, but he's the guy who's like a rock star. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. The heroin addict. Yeah, that's right. The heroin the, addict. Yeah. The Hobbit guy. Yeah, exactly. So he he's in it too. But the basic concept of the show is on this date in 2009 when the show opens. Everyone passes out for two minutes and 17 seconds. And they all experience a vision while they're passed out. And the one of the, the first frame, the first basic scene of the show is kind of outstanding because planes are falling out of the sky and crashing and exploding. Cars are crashing everywhere because it's a normal day. Everyone's going around their their normal commute and they all pass out at the same time. Huh. So, so I think autopilot would uh, stop that from the planes. Yeah, I, I would think so too. But I, you know, I think there's one big plane crash that you see one jumbo jet crash that you see. And I think it was coming in for a landing and I don't think they can. But yeah, that would make sense. But uh, yeah, so it's, it's like mass hysteria and everyone that's left alive experience some vision at least most people uh john cho and a few other people don't see anything which and the oh, i should explain so their their vision that they see this flash forward is their life from their point of view six months from that date and like i said some people don't see anything which they interpret to mean that they're going to die in the next six months and uh joseph fines plays an fbi agent who's in charge of the investigation as to what happened, why it happened, if it's going to happen again, and how they can prevent it. And it's based on a book that was published in 1999 by uh, Robert Sawyer, who's a Canadian author. And the the book's different than the television show. It's... but it's very interesting. The book is ha, deals a lot with physics because, as it turns out, in both the book and the show, experiments at the Large uh, Hadron Collider is the reason that these flash forwards happened. 
Those Weisenheimers. <laughs> and um, in the book, one of the interesting, they get a lot into physics, they get a lot into metaphysics, and they get a lot into religion and philosophical ideas and things like that. And one of the interesting things is that in the book, they don't show this in the show, but in the book, while everyone's passed out having their flash-forward vision, no recording devices in the entire world work. So no one can see what's ha- what happened. No one can see what they looked like while they were passed out or if they were walking or anything like that. Be- and it's in the book, it's shown as evidence of the observer effect in uh, in, uh, in quantum, quantum physics. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's there's a lot of interesting ideas that it deal that the book deals with and the show seemed like it was going in that direction. The, the they wrote the finale and they filmed the finale not knowing that they were going to get canceled. And in the finale, another flash forward happens and everyone sees themselves t- about 22 years into the future, which is more in line with the book because in the book they don't see themselves Six months into the future, they see themselves 22 years in the future. So, you know, on that day that they all saw six months into the future, they have another flash forward and everyone sees these visions. And it's a cliffhanger and that's kind of how it all ends. And they, they canceled they the canceled. show and they never brought it back. And it seemed like they were moving towards going into these uh, ideas. But it, it's another thing where they kind of they blended drama and they blended almost police procedural type stuff with a sci-fi element. And for whatever reason, it seems like outside of the X-Files, people don't... And the X-Files was certainly more science fiction than it was police procedural. Oh, for sure. But the, those two audiences don't seem to share uh, uh, share likes. So they don't get a lot of uh, a lot of viewership, and this was certainly no exception. They did okay... On their first episode, but the uh, ratings just kept, you know, going down from there, and they uh, they ended up canceling the show. But I would have liked to have seen what the aftermath of the the next flash forward and kind of how they were going to deal with with all that stuff, and to move into more of the philosophical and religious. Um, you know, ideas that the book really brought up because I think that could have made a very interesting TV show. So I was, I was upset that that one, that was, that's one of the only ones where they've canceled the show and I was actually really upset about it. Oh, that's a shame. Um, did the book go into what happened or? Basically the book kind of doesn't, the book has a conclusion, but it's not, the book's not necessarily structured like a traditional narrative would be structured. Basically, what happened is it, it focused a little more on the scientists than it did anyone investigating what happened. And they there's a group uh, funded by a billionaire that's uh, started something called the Immortality Project, and they want to figure out a way to make everyone immortal. So they tap this scientist to kind of help them, and there's another flash forward in the book too, but it goes into it's like two or three million years in the future, and almost no one sees anything because obviously they'll be dead. But this this scientist sees himself in a um, like a, a cyborg type 
uh, body where his consciousness has been implanted and he's flying through the universe able to to live and kind of see everything. But in the book, they make it very clear that the future is not set in stone. Like certain people did things to change what they saw in their flash forward and it actually did change. And the scientist yeah. ends up rejecting the offer because he doesn't want to live without his wife, basically. And it's imp- it's heavily implied that his friend is going to take this up. Uh, but they that's kind of where they get into the philosophical and religious part of it, because they talk a lot about the, uh, what is it called? I think it's the Omega Point. Omega point? Yeah, the Omega yeah, Point. The omega. Oh. I thought you were going to say singular- Singularity. No, no, they don't. No, it's not. It's not. There's not really much about artificial intelligence. It's more about taking human consciousness and implanting it in something that can live forever, basically. But the Omega point in physics is a theory where basically at some point humanity will grow to the extent where we have complete mastery over the entire universe and where we'll be able to raise the dead and everything because we'll be able to access all the alternate dimensions that exist, that exist. from the huh. beginning and and in replaying them from the big bang to you know the inevitable entropy death of the universe we'll be able to bring back anybody that we want to it's a it's a kind of out there uh, theory but they dive into a lot of it in the book and i think it would have made I think those, some of those ideas would have made it really interesting television. I think those are always interesting. Like for me, like the Matrix and like Fight Club, they seem like on the surface to be like these like kind of like guttural like action type movies. But when you look at either of them, they're like super philosophical. Mm-hmm. Like Fight Club is like you know it's a I mean spoiler for a twenty three year old movie, yeah. maybe nineteen. I mean, you know, obviously the whole thing is like basically like a question of who are you and, you know, can you change yourself? Is it important to, you know, kind of thrust your uh, will upon the rest of the world? Mm-hmm. Whereas the Matrix is like the classic, like brain in the box type experience, you know. I mean, am I, what's reality? I mean, basically the Matrix, the first movie at least, not the other ones, question the very nature of what reality is. I mean, phil- philosophical movies are always great, but you can see why people wouldn't, I mean, they never seem to do well either at the theater. I mean, The Matrix and Fight Club are both exceptions to that, obviously, because they were on the surface. You can enjoy them on multiple levels. You can enjoy the Fight Club as just, like, a guy and his buddies, like, you know, rejecting society and, like, destroying, you know, the credit card companies and beating each other to a bloody pulp each weekend. But really, I mean, Fight Club is just an amazing, like, story. And, like, you know, I mean, if you watch it from the beginning, which I think you and I, was it you and I that did? You'll actually see little glimpses of, like, Tyler Durden, like, kind of, like, you know, forcing himself onto the narrator. Like, you'll see, like, a flash of Brad Pitt. You'll never catch it if you just watch the movie one time all the way through. But there's, like, a single, you know, frame of the film, which is kind of funny because they mentioned that in, like, one of the, uh, you know, asides. Like, the narrator's talking about, like, oh, we put little uh, messages in movies. I mean, that might be the only movie that's better than the book. And the book is really good, too. But, I mean, the movie is just, like... It's like David Fincher's masterpiece. It's like a commentary on, you know, the book and the movie and the nature of storytelling. It's just phenomenal. Absolutely. I totally agree. It's it's one of my favorite movies, too. One of the interesting stories that I heard from Chuck Palahniuk about the movie was that scene where Marla and Tyler Durden are in bed together. 
in the book, and I know you you've read the book too. Too making Whoopi. Yeah, exactly. To borrow a phrase from the great Charles Nelson Riley. Um, no, no, no. That's from uh, our good friend uh, Bodie. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. But uh, yeah, um, when they're when they're in the bed together, and in the book she says, and ch- as Chuck explains it, um, he said, you know, the like the sweet saccharine thing for her to say would be, I want to have your baby. So he said, what could the inverse of that be? So in the book, she says, I hope you got me pregnant because I really want to have your abortion. So the the executives did not like that line, and they didn't want the line in the movie. So Fincher, he said, like, he, said he, he filmed several uh, different cuts of that with different lines and everything, and Fincher actually wrote the line, um, I haven't been fucked like that since grade school. <laughs> and they, you, you know, they, they, so they filmed that line and the executive said, can we go back to the abortion line? <laughs> so I actually heard that a little differently. What I heard, I, I don't know what the truth of it is, is I heard that they, you know, obviously the executives didn't want someone to say something about, I want to have an abortion in a movie. Mm-hmm. Cause you know, the movie itself was a family friendly, uh, vehicle until that line. Right. But I heard that like Fincher and I don't know if Chuck Pelahanek, however it's pronounced, was involved. But they said, "Okay, we'll do an alternate thing, but you have to accept it." And you know, the uh, executives shockingly couldn't imagine something worse than that. And that's when they came with the "I've been fucked like that since grade school." <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's probably a mix of those two. I, I heard. Oh yeah, I'm heard... sure that we don't. Much like Fight Club, we don't know the truth behind this. Right, but I, I heard uh, Chuck Palahniuk was or Palahniuk was on a uh, another podcast inferior to ours obviously uh, obviously uh, where he he told that story um about Fincher writing the line and everything and the executives saying that now you know it could have been it's probably a blend of, of both those stories like I said because they probably Fincher probably said to him okay you know I'll do some some alternates but whatever one I choose you got to take and they said okay sure. and then when they saw it they were like no no let's go back to the thing and Fincher was like nope I wrote this as the scene in the movie <laughs> can you imagine the media that like now we're kind of going with abortion on this one what do you think <laughs> you have a bunch of like third year old guys in like suits and ties crowded around a uh, giant oak table with you know croissants laid out yeah now luckily that movie, Fight Club, which came out the same year as The Matrix, 1999. Luckily, that, that was in a, a time in Hollywood where, I mean, obviously executives have always had their input and have always meddled a little bit. But um, at least that was in a time in Hollywood where Fincher could just say, no, I want, this is the way I want it. And they just kind of let it go. Nowadays, they'd be micromanaged to every point that there's no i don't think you could make fight club today fight club not today, in a studio, not. Oh, a studio there's there's no way i mean even with like the columbine shootings that was a factor on fight club mm-hmm. and they're lucky that you know it wasn't done in 2001 because they would never have let that happen with you know the world trade center attacks yep oh, there's a part where he's in a plane and the plane's just exploding on him and he couldn't be happier yeah i know yep but yeah you can yeah, you-, you can make that movie today and it's a shame because those kind of auteur-driven visions where a guy, you know, like Fincher wrote the script with uh, Chuck Palahniuk, but, you know, 
where you have somebody that writes it, directs it, it's their vision, it's their movie. It's hard to find those now. Yeah, I think Quentin Tarantino might just have enough clout to do that. Yeah. But yeah, basically, you know, where you would get a movie like Fight Club or even The Matrix back then, what you get now is a uh, another reboot of uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. Exactly. Queen. <laughs> okay, so before we talk about our main topic, uh, I figured we'd go, or we both figured, we'd go and talk about what we've been watching this week. Oh yeah, do you want to go first or do you want me to go? Uh, I've got two. How many do you have? You know, I'm kind of just rambling at this point, but I do remember what I watched, so you can go first if you want. Okay. So, uh, I watched the this movie. I've seen it before, and I, I rewatched it again last night. Uh, I was reminded of it. I don't remember how exactly. But it's one of those that it wasn't, it didn't have, it didn't do well in the theater. It didn't have a lot of, it was a limited release and it didn't have a lot of clout behind it, a lot of marketing behind it or anything. I found it on, on demand, uh, on my brother's cable way back when in, uh, 2007, I think 2007 or 2008, but it's called, uh, behind the mask, the rise of Leslie Vernon. And it sounds familiar. I haven't seen that, but it does sound familiar. What it is, is it's, a mockumentary movie where they're, they're shooting it like it's a documentary from, for the most part, there are a couple places where it switches, where it's not a documentary anymore and it becomes basically a regular movie, but it takes place in a world where Freddy Krueger, um, Jason Voorhees, Michael Myers are all real and they're all serial killers and people think of them as somewhat supernatural or, or whatever, but they're they're kind of just thought of as as murderers. And this new one is coming into play. His name is Leslie Vernon. He's played very well by uh, a man named Nathan uh, Basil, who looks and acts a lot like Ryan Reynolds. I could completely see. Ryan Reynolds playing this part and n- not that I mean Nathan Basil is great in the movie um but had it been a like a larger budget movie or something like that this would be uh the part for Ryan Reynolds for sure, uh, sure. But, but basically he's training to become another one of these you know like uh like Jason or um or Freddie and um so it, it's kind of, it's funny in a lot of ways uh, because it really takes down the uh, the tropes of slasher, oh, slasher Like he does a ton of cardio and stuff like that. He's doing all this cardio training and the uh, it's a student and her cameraman and a sound guy and they're like walking around doing a documentary uh, about this stuff, trying to get a story on it and like interviewing him and they're getting like the full, like, uh, you know, like they get to see everything like a full behind the scenes thing. And he's doing all this cardio and stuff. And she's like, you know, why all the cardio? And he's like, are you kidding me? He said, you know, you've got to do this thing where the people see you and then they turn away for a second. And you're gone. <laughs> he's like, you got to act like you're walking and they're all running their ass off and you got to catch up with them and everything. And, um, they really, they, they, they admit that like his backstory is all made up and everything. Um, 
and so you know so by extension michael myers and jason like all their stories are are um are made up as well and they basically just create this legend and stuff and they show all the different things he does like how he rigs the um how he rigs the windows like he nails them shut and how he he maps out uh this little farmhouse where all this stuff's going to take place at he like he kind of maps all this stuff out and everything and one of the big questions is you know why do you do this and basically his take is that he provides a counterbalance for good in the world in order for good to exist evil must exist as well and him doing this basically um you know reaffirms and heightens the good and stuff like that it's it's that's probably the weakest part of it it's a little that that's a little muddled it could probably be a little bit more fleshed out but it's a very enjoyable movie uh and it's got a lot of robert england's in it not as freddie but just playing a, a different character um zelda rubenstein's in it uh you'll probably remember her from poltergeist she's the real uh short little lady with the that oh, yeah, voice. Yeah, yeah. isn't she dead now i believe she is yeah and uh, Kane Hodder has a uh, a little bit part at the end. Uh, he played, he was Jason in several of the um, Friday the 13th sure. films. But uh, yeah, so it's, you know, it's it's a loving homage to the slasher films of the past. They, you know, they mention by name Michael Myers and uh, Jason and Freddy and some of the other ones. And um yeah, it's uh, it, it's a little cabin in the woods, a little bit. I mean, not, it doesn't go quite that far, but it's uh, it's a little it's a little bit like that where it um, it's basically like, hey, here's a real world explanation of we're all just serial killers. And like I said, the the place where it kind of falls down a little bit is in the um, in the reasoning behind it. But I don't think movies like this always necessarily need a solid reasoning. Sure. What was the other one you saw? Well, the other thing I've been watching is uh, Maniac on Netflix, which is, stars Jonah Hill and Emma Stone. And it's, I saw the first episode and I was like, when it was over, I thought, do I like this? <laughs> you know, I was, I was kind of torn on it. And I watched the second episode and I started to get into it a lot more. And then I started the third episode and I just, I've kind of been, been going from there and I've been getting more and more into it as it's been going along. But it takes place, I believe it's supposed to be around our time, but it's clearly a alternate dimension because there are certain things that are odd. There are certain um, technological advances that we don't have. And then there are certain things that they don't have that we do. Like they don't have cell phones in this world and the gas pumps are all old, like 1950s gas pumps. The cars look uh, much more antiquated than, than we're used to driving. They have the internet, but it's, it's weird. The televisions and the computers are all uh, like eighties or like late seventies style things so it's weird because some technology has gone past where we're at in certain areas and other technology has stayed stagnant which bothers me a little bit because it's just not how technology works yeah that makes sense that's kind of interesting though i'm sure it comes into play like oh no i need to call you know the police but i'm out in the woods right exactly 
and, and you think about it when they're in when the characters are in different situations. But there's one part that you know it's 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 very on the nose. Um, basically, Jonah Hill's character, and he's very they Jonah Hill and Emma Stone are very good actors, and they're very good in this movie or in this TV show. And Jonah Hill's character is suffering from schizophrenia or some kind of schizoaffective disorder where he sees hallucinations. And one of his main hallucinations is of his bro- uh, of someone that looks like his brother but is not his brother, has a different name, and has a mustache, and his brother doesn't have a mustache. And he tells him that he's going to save the world, that Jonah Hill's character is going to save the world. Someone's going to contact him. There's patterns in everything. And he says the pattern is the pattern a lot. And he hallucinates some other things as well. And he's sort of aware that he's hallucinating these things. Like, he sort of doesn't believe it, but he also does believe it at, at different times. Um, and he ends up going to make some money. He ends up going to be part of this drug trial, which Emma Stone does as well because she's addicted to this drug uh, that they're testing. She got it in a clandestine way, but she can't get any more. And that's kind of how they meet. And he thinks that that's his handler. And at one point, Emma Stone is packing a bag and she looks at this book and says, I'll finally read you this time. And the book is Don Quixote. And I said, oh, that's it's a little on the nose because it's literally a book about a guy who's delusional, who thinks he's on this special quest and is obsessed with the girl. Is a uh, is a drug called Gleaminex? <laughs> no, it's their drugs are A, B, and C. Because oh, they're, okay. they're still in dr- they're still in a trial, but they're shaped. The pills are shaped like an A, a B, <laughs> a C. <laughs> what? Yeah, and what? Uh, what it's supposed to do, what this drug is supposed to do is replace cognitive behavioral therapy. That that if you take this course of three pills, that it will basically exercise all, um, you know, your past traumas and everything so that you can be a mentally healthy individual. And, sure. you know, I'm not finished with the series yet, so I'm not exactly sure where it's going. But it's it's got me now. At the beginning, like I said, I was a little... I was a little, the first episode is, is fine, but I was a little like, eh, this is really kind of weird, and I don't know that I love it, uh, but as it went on in the second episode, I it picked up steam, and I started to get more invested in it, and then I started to get a, a lot invested by the third episode, and it's the characters. The, the, the concept, it's a kind of a high concept show, which is interesting. But the characters and how they relate to each other and the job that Jonah Hill and Emma Stone are doing acting is really what sell it. And their their relationship and their back and forth is kind of what pulls you through the series. So I'm interested to see where that goes. Sure, I'm sorry. I, I thought I saw it. It's on Netflix, right? Yes. Yes. So I thought it was just like a one, like one part or movie. I didn't realize it was a series. It's kind of interesting that they got a... Uh, Two pretty big, you know, stars to be in a series like that. I think, and I'm not sure, but I think it's a limited series. So I think it's basically like, um, I'm trying to remember how many episodes it is. Like, like eight or ten? 
Yeah, I think it's eight or ten episodes. So it's basically like an eight or ten hour movie. Because I don't, I don't, I don't think they're going to have a second season. Well, sure, that's still pretty impressive. Kind of like uh, True Detective, the first one at least, where it had uh, you know Matthew McConaughey and uh, Woody Harrelson for mm-hmm. ten episodes. But like, it's like, wow, why are these guys in a series? But you know, it's limited, so they can actually kind of stretch and tell a story in a uh, longer form. Yeah. Oh, and it's it's and I like that too. That's one of the things that I like about Netflix and I like about TV in general now is um that they're I like episodic shows. I mean, I don't have a problem with uh with, you know, episodic shows at all. They they definitely have their place, but I like that and I think that's why TV is is getting better than movies are now because they've basically done the job of a movie but better. Uh, because, oh yeah, for sure. Because they and they have, and I mean, part of it is not a movie's fault necessarily, because a television show or a limited series like this has a, a larger canvas that they can paint with. But a lot of talent is going into TV now, it, getting deals with Netflix and and stuff like that. And you know, it's it's very interesting to take these these interesting concepts, these interesting ideas to get. Uh, good people to work with to get good writers for them and kind of explore them in a long format it makes for very good television and i think you know i think the sopranos breaking bad the wire i think those shows kind of were the forerunners of this they sort of changed changed. yeah the sopranos i'm not a big fan of it but it's definitely the genesis of all these like amazing long i mean i don't just like the sopranos but i just watched it a couple times you know and i got to a certain point and i'm like okay i'm done yeah i, watched, I mean yeah I definitely you have to have david chase and you know obviously the great actor james gandolfini who passed well before his time a lot of credit for just like establishing the golden age of television yeah i, I yeah i agree and uh yeah, like I said, I think that that you know that's kind of the genesis of what what came after because people realized, hey, we can actually do this, and we can actually we can actually mine these ideas that were usually only reserved for movies, and you know, two hours or two and a half hours, we can mine these ideas really well through you know ten hours, twelve hours, yeah, sure. and and, and, then, and and that'll be popular. Yeah, and you have to like you have to think like you know early TV and even a lot of modern TV is like these quick one episode like things that nothing's attached to anything else. Even like a show like ER, you know, it's a uh, groundbreaking in a sense. But I mean, each episode basically like there's like one main monster of the week type thing. Like, oh, this guy has lupus, or you know. But then the do- you know there's a little kind of subplot of the doctors like, oh, I like you, I like you too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah. whereas something like you know the Sopranos, or I'm going to refer to this a lot, Breaking Bad, like Breaking Bad is just like a watershed. You could like put symbolism in it. You could have callbacks. You could have references. You could have flashbacks, flash forwards. Mm-hmm. It's just like a huge, like to use your phrase, canvas. You could just throw whatever you want against. It just becomes like you know the more you see, the better it is. Whereas like you know usually in the past, movies were like the you know the premier form of entertainment to see. But I mean. Like speaking of David Fincher, the director of Fight Club, if he did, if he went on Netflix and did seven as a ten-part limited series, that would be the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Oh, I yeah, I agree. Because like and like you said, there's so many ideas in that movie and in that concept that you could easily do do ten hours of it. Yeah, I mean seven. I mean you could do eight episodes. You know, first seven are the sins. You could have. 
you know, the Morgan Freeman's character who's pretty philosophical to begin with. Brad Pitt's like kind of like a brash young man who's just trying to be established as a detective. You know, he's been a good police officer. He's trying to make his bones as like, you know, a well-known, respected detective. That would just be amazing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and then so, uh, yeah, the three of them. probably want to not have Kevin Spacey in that one. <laughs> but the three of them are kind of like the, the id, the ego, and the superego. Oh, yeah, for sure. But, uh, yeah, that would um, well, that would be, yeah, I think that would be amazing. And I think you could make something, if they did that, they rebooted that, like on Netflix or something, I think you'd have a chance, like with what you're talking about, to make something that might that might be even better than the movie, which is saying a lot. Yeah, Seven's an amazing movie, and David Fitcher's an amazing director, storyteller, writer. I mean, if you took that and just let him take his time to tell the story... People would not sleep after that was concluded. It's mm-hmm. just incredible. I mean, Fight Club, I, I don't think you can improve on the original Fight Club movie. I mean, thankfully, uh, Fox or whoever you know, produced it didn't want a sequel. Though I think there is a sequel in like comic form now or something like that. Yeah, I think there is, yeah. But I mean, like David Fincher, I mean, he did what? He did Seven, which is amazing, Fight Club. And I don't know, did we? I, I always forget who I see movies with. I think you and I saw... Um, Zodiac together? Yeah, we did. Yeah, there's, I mean, it's kind of like a dry movie in points, but I mean, there's scenes in that movie that are just, like, breathtaking. Like, when they're playing hurdy-gurdy, man, and, like, the guy sneaks up on the couple in the car, just you just see, like, two isolated gunshots in the pitch black of night. That's, like, an incredible scene. Mm-hmm. I, I like that, uh, I like that movie a lot, actually. Yeah, and that movie is, like, in, there's a part of that movie that's just crazy. They're watching the premiere of, um, what was it, Dirty Harry? Yep. Yep. And I think the guy who was the actual detective for the Zodiac case was an extra in that. So they're basically a guy watching a movie based on a real case that's in the real in a movie portraying the real. It's like an insane, like Inception type scenario. Yeah. Oh, all right. So, um, did we talk about what you've been watching? No, not yet. Okay, go ahead. All right, well, I was watching the World Series. I didn't catch the Dodgers-Brewers games. So that was kind of a foregone, foregone conclusion. Hmm. I saw the uh, the Red Sox uh, beat the um, Astros. I kind of had mixed feelings about that. I mean, I like, um, you know, Ferlander, as much as I said about him earlier, I do respect him as a performer. I mean, sports is entertainment. Let's not be, you know, kidding about this. Uh, Jose Altuve, love the guy. He's amazing. But, I mean, I was, you know, the, the Red Sox were going to win, and that's what happened. And I don't need any updates of that. <laughs> Another thing I watched uh, was um, Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Love that show. Oh, yeah. Do you watch it regularly? Um, no, I've seen, I want to say the first. See, this is, one of the, this is one of those ones where I need to carve out time to do it because I want to watch it from the beginning. And I think yeah. I've seen the first couple episodes. Oh, yeah, that's a shame because Always Sunny is one of those rare shows where each episode is a story in itself, but it does build upon past stories. So you could watch any episode of the show, and it's hilarious. But if you watch all the callbacks and references and the Easter eggs to former episodes, it's just like it's it's a it's an amazing show. Yeah, that's what I'm. Yeah. That's what I have to check out for sure. Yeah, this particular episode was a clip show, which you know on its surface sounds like oh great a clip show, but much like the uh, amazing clip show that the Clerks the animated series showed. Which was the second episode, and it just this one was almost like a uh, Rashomon type thing where you know you see different perspectives and it starts to alt. It was a really a weird episode for Always Sunny, 
because it just basically like you know it was almost like a supernatural type element to it. But any fan of the show, it's just it was an amazing episode. And I mean, the earlier episodes of the season, I was not a fan of, but now they've basically just like destroyed the mythology that was established in the first episode and the last couple episodes of last season. It's just it. I mean, it's any fan of the show definitely needs to see the most recent few episodes. They're just amazing. Okay, that's something I will definitely check out. Um, another thing I. <laughs> Um, on Saturday, I went to a wedding. Um, my wife was a member of the wedding party. Um, congratulations, John and Nicole. All right, all right, um, but unfortunately, unfortunately, I hadn't been drinking this month, but at the wedding, there was an open bar. <laughs> I, 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 love, I love the phrase, unfortunately, I haven't been drinking this month. Yeah, because uh, like, there's a, this thing called Sober October. I'm like, yeah, it's an open bar and it's free, so I'm not paying for it, so why not? <laughs> Yeah, so what I did was I proceeded to drink uh, like about 12 mixed drinks and a pitcher of beer. Oh, wow. wow. So on the way home, uh, my wife was driving because I left my car there because I will not drink one beer and drive a car. That's just something I won't do. So um, (laughs) my friend Matt, who you know, obviously, Mm -hmm. I messaged him because at the uh, midnight show, there was uh, they were playing John Carpenter's A Thing, which is one of my favorite horror movies. Mm Mm-hmm. So I'm like, oh, come on, Matt. Well, well, let's go to the thing. He's like, oh, sure. And then I'm like, uh, he's like, you're going to be awake, right? Because I have a bad habit of passing out when I drink too much. So I'm like, yeah, sure, of course. There's no way I'll pass out for this. It's the thing. So he gets over at 11. The movie starts at midnight. And uh, I'm like, you know, I don't really feel like going to the movies. I'm kind of sleepy now. (laughs) But luckily, it was on Encore. So I saw the opening scene, and the next thing I know, I was waking up, and no one else was in the room with me. Oh, my gosh. But I do still have fond memories of the thing by John Carpenter, so I would definitely check that out, anyone. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, one of my favorite stories to tell involves you, and I, I know you'll remember this story. We, uh, we went to the Dollar Show one time, and... We were going to see some Bruce Willis movie. I don't even remember what it was. Do you remember the movie? Striking Distance? It might have been. And we got in there. The previews start playing. And for some reason, I just decided. No, no. I know what you're going to say. You're completely wrong in this. But go ahead. What? What, what am I wrong about? Uh, no, no. I know where you're going with this. Go ahead and I'll correct you when you're wrong. Okay. For some reason, I decided I don't want to watch this movie. I just didn't feel like being there. Plus, I had to go to the bathroom. So, I I went up. I said, you know, I got to go to the bathroom. I drove to my house. I went to the bathroom. I made a sandwich. I watched some TV. Um, I uh, <laughs> did some other stuff. And I was your ride. So, I knew I had to go back up there. And I kind of, like, I had... Did, this wasn't really a plan, but once I decided I didn't want to watch it anymore, it became kind of like, oh, this will be funny to do. So I drive back to the to the theater. I go back into the um to the 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 movie theater and or the auditorium, and I see you sitting there. So I walk down. I sit next. I sit down next to you. The last frame of the movie is on the screen. I could I didn't time this out. I couldn't have timed it any better. The you last <laughs> the last frame of the movie is on the screen and I think it shows it showed like a um like a tape recorder or something like that. 
was playing and I knew that like whatever it was doing was <laughs> probably unraveling the entire mystery of this movie. I sat down <laughs> next to you. I turned to you and I said, did I miss anything? <laughs> <laughs> And that's what you did for like the last five minutes of the movie. First of all, this is one of my favorite stories about you I ever have to tell because it's fucking hilarious. <laughs> Secondly, you're 100% wrong. The movie was Narco with Ray Liotta and Jason Patrick. That's right. It was Ray Liotta. <laughs> and it was a really good movie. <laughs> but I don't remember what happened because I was wondering, where the fuck is Mark the whole time? <laughs> Oh my god, that is that is one of the best stories I have of that the beloved yet uh now retired movie uh sixteen. Yep, yep, universal my friend um my friend uh, Matt and I would go there all the time. You and I have another funny story there. I think it was uh we saw the mummy part two. Mm -hmm. I hadn't seen the first mummy, which didn't affect my viewing of the second at all. Though so I did uh, discover Rachel Weiss, so, uh, you know. Yep. yep. But we were with uh, Matt, a.k.a. Dustin, in Hat, and for some reason, he decided to buy a movie meal. <laughs> for those not in the know, what's a movie meal? A movie meal is a meal that a child will buy in order to watch a movie. It's like $5. It has a drink, popcorn, and some kind of candy. Yeah. Mark... Big an asshole decided to throw pennies in the popcorn when he was away to the bathroom. And guess what happens three quarters of the way through the movie? Matt, Dustin, and Matt starts choking to death. You and I were laughing our asses off, and he almost died. Oh my god! Oh, I love, I love. Two things I love about this story is one that you're. Your explanation is, Mark, because he's an asshole, which I am. <laughs> yes, we both are. That's one of the things we have in common. And, and the other thing that I love about that is when he didn't die, we, or at least I, basically just made fun of him for yeah. buying a movie meal. <laughs> oh, we made fun of the movie meal the whole time. Oh, my God. Just to put an exclamation point on that, you almost killed him. Death by movie meal. And, and <laughs> indirectly me. I think that's what we were both going for. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great to see the paper? How'd he die? Well, he had a movie meal. Oh, God. Because I don't think either of you, either you or I would have said you put the pennies in there. It just came in this shitty little box. <laughs> that could barely be held together. Oh, God. Oh. There, uh, a great story from that movie, uh, movie theater is um, my friend Matt and I, who will feature in a lot of my stories from now on, we went there and um, it was shortly after 9-11. We were seeing, I don't know, I would say Fight Club, but that doesn't make sense time-wise. But regardless, <laughs> we were there and a uh, Middle Eastern gentleman sat in front of us, which, you know, whatever. But then he had a paper bag with like something in it, and he left the paper bag in the seat, and he walked out of the movie and never came back. Oh, my God. Oh my God. So me, being a good friend, did I tell Matt that, hey, that guy left a bag? Nope. What I did was like, oh, you know, I want to see how I get a better view. So I went and sat in the front row of the movie, well on the blast radius. <laughs> and then after the movie, he's like, why'd you go sit down there? I'm like, oh, I thought the guy put a bomb there. 
And he goes, you know what I tell me? Like, hey, what did you think I was crazy? Oh my god. <laughs> uh, how horrifying though. I mean, right after 9-11, a Middle Eastern guy's got a bag, leaves it in the movie theater, and just walks away. Oh, he came in, he was there for five minutes. He was fucking with the bag the whole time. He just set it on the ground and walked out. Oh my god. For all I know, it was a dud. <laughs> Right? <laughs> Sarah, Sarah almost had you killed. I hate what you think it was a weirdo. Oh my god, that is hilarious. <laughs> oh, well, now's as good a time of any, I guess, to move on to our main topic today, which is uh, Halloween 2018. Uh, it's uh, David Gordon Green, Green directed it. It's uh, a sequel to Halloween 1, ignoring every other movie that came after Halloween 1, which, like I said, the Halloween timeline is uh, seriously messed up. They had Halloween 1, Halloween 2, Halloween 3, where they... I I like Halloween 3, but they tried to to do something different. They tried to make it into an anthology series. Uh, it was not popular, so they went back to Halloween 4. Yeah, you described that to me, and I would like if you'd talk about that a little bit. That sounded amazing to me, the way you described it, how it was like Haunted Mask, something like that. Oh, Halloween 3? Yeah, would you mind going into that just a bit? I mean, I know you said it wasn't popular, but it sounded like really impressive. So basically, the idea is that everyone's kind of, you know, they're getting ready for Halloween and everything, and... The, the main idea of the story is that there are these masks that this company, Silver Shamrock, is giving away to kids and everything um, for Halloween. And they have this um, television program, which, like, it basically activates the, um, the masks. And... It basically what it does is it rots out the uh, the kids' heads and kills them whenever this this thing is played. And there's this song that's like you know uh, happy happy Halloween 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 and it ends with silver shamrock. Um, it's just like big. They they have this. It's they're gonna have this big giveaway that's gonna air on Halloween night after this horathon and. The, each mask, it's 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 really weird. It's like a druidy type thing because each mask contains a fragment of Stonehenge, and it's there's microchips in it. Um, the flashing lights on the screen are what activate it, and it like absorbs all their energy. It unleashes this swarm of insects and stuff like that. But there's a scene in the the show in the movie. Where, you know, there's a kid watching the thing. This happens to him. His head completely collapses. All these bugs come out of it. And it's just like, they're killing, like, you know, tons of kids as some sort of, like, uh, ritualistic... um... That Christ. Yeah, basically, yeah. But it's, uh, you know, I like it, one, because it's, it's interesting. It's And it's something different. They... They really decided to try to go in a completely different direction and do something completely different. And it's one of those, it's kind of like a like a 50s or a 60s B 
horror movie that's well, that's that's sort of that's the feel of it. Yeah, yeah, like the Tingler or something like that. Yeah. And it's it's kind of, it's a little bit campy, but it's it's honestly creepy and it's just it, I think it's a fun watch and it's um it's something definitely uh different than they were going for. But yeah, I like I like Halloween 3 a lot actually. Uh, actually. Yeah, I've only seen like a cover and even the cover or like the poster is kind of creepy, just like a kid in a witch's hat, you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yep. I would have liked to see an anthology type series, you know. For, I mean, John Carpenter's like, okay, I did Michael Myers, let me do something else, but people wouldn't let him do something else. Yeah, yeah, he wanted to do, he wanted to do, like, uh, just every Halloween, I mean, not necessarily make a movie every year, but every iteration of every new sequel for the Halloween series would be a different story featuring a different antagonist set around the season of Halloween. Sure, that's also kind of ties into, like, I don't know if you remember this or not. Um, were you a Shalm Shark or a uh, Kenwood Frog? I was a Kenwood Frog. Son of a bitch. I know. I know you're a Shalm Shark. Yeah. Um, but in my when I was in elementary school, there were like these parents who pass out a flyer. I don't know if you got it as well. There was this thing called a blue diamond tattoo. Does that sound familiar? No. It was like probably part of the satanic panic of the 80s, late 80s, yep. where they yep. said that these people were going around giving kids tattoos, like temporary tattoos. They're actually LSD. Oh, God. It's like a common like kind of like satanic panic type thing. So, you know, my uh, grandmother was really certain to tell me that you not to accept tattoos from strangers because, you know, people who sell drugs love giving them away. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they don't want any profit and LSD is super addictive from what I've heard. <laughs> yeah, it seems like that was almost like, you know, kind of like woven into the, you know, the metaphysical aspects of the uh, concept of Halloween 3. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's the same thing like that, like what you're talking about, the blue diamond thing, like someone giving that as a uh, a thing for trick-or-treating. Um, you know, the razor blade thing, too. Yeah. yeah. No evidence, no one ever, anyone's ever done that. That's... Almost 100% true, but there was one guy who killed his son by putting poison in candy, but then he put it in all the candy, so he, they claimed that there was, like, you know, a uh, a thing that it was going around poisoning kids. Oh. And also, if you remember, shortly after 9-11, um, not only were people dropping uh, paper bags in movie theaters, <laughs> but um, there was, like, reports like, oh, a Middle Eastern person bought, like, 500 bags of candy, so watch out. It was just, like, a weird, like, cultural, like, fear associated with Halloween. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is yeah. fun in one aspect, but I mean, at the, at the time, it's like, I mean, come on. Like, how. Do you remember a few years ago when um the the remake of It came out? Like, there are all these spottings of, like, clowns all across the country. Yep, I remember that. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of hilarious in a lot of ways, but I mean, it's the same sort of thing. Like, people like to play into the Halloween season, which I'm not opposed to, but I mean, it's like, some people take it seriously. And it's like, come on. Yeah, and some, well, some of the stuff they were doing was kind of dangerous. Like, they'd be, uh, they would be, like, in the woods staring at kids and stuff like that, <laughs> like on the playground. And it's like, I always thought, okay, I get what you're doing, you know, haha, it's kind of funny and stuff. But yeah. aren't you worried you're going to get shot? Yeah, that's probably a good way to get shot. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I would be worried if I was to do something like that, as big of an asshole as I am, if I was to do something like that, I'd be worried you're going to kill me. Yeah, like Matt Ian had at the, uh, the movies. <laughs> See, I like to be the one setting up the deaths. <laughs> You're like Saw rather than uh, Michael Myers. Exactly. 
So I always thought it'd be fun, and by fun, again, I'm an asshole. <laughs> but it'd be fun to just tie like a bunch of like red balloons of sewer grates, you know, around the Halloween season. Oh my god, that would be <laughs> what's, what's more fun than that? Oh, that is awesome. Yeah, but I mean, but I mean, you know, a few people would get that and just be kind of creepy. But yeah, standing in the woods by a school in this uh, day and age probably not the smartest thing you could do. Yeah. No, um, but yeah, anyways, uh, Halloween 2018. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let me give you my review of the of the movie, and I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna paraphrase uh, the great Norm Macdonald here. I would rate it between shit and fucking shit. <laughs> shit. <laughs> I uh, I did not like this movie. I thought it was boring. I thought it was more of the same. It was almost a I mean, not really, but it was. <sighs> It was it met all the exact beats, even though the story was different. But it met all the beats of the original Halloween. There was no... I mean, there were some attempts at new ideas that were completely abandoned. Uh, at, at I mean, four or five of them. At every aspect. They'd bring up something where you would say, Oh, that seems like that might be interesting. And then they drop it immediately, and it never comes back again. It was right. it, it was one of the most boring horror movies I've ever seen in my life. I, it did not scare me at all. Um, I, I obviously am in the minority. I think it has an eighty percent on Rotten Tomatoes and like a seventy nine percent audience score. They're both positive, and they're both very close together. I've I've heard a couple other reviewers. Even I've, I've listened to Red Letter Media earlier today because they came out with their review which I didn't realize was going to happen, that I'd get to see them before we did this podcast. And I respect them a lot. They both said that they liked it. I, I I respect their opinion a lot, but I just can't agree that it was it was boring to me, completely boring. And in some places, so over the top, it became comical. That, sure. that, that first scene when, uh, I guess... You t- tell me what you thought of the movie, and then we'll get into spoilers. Yeah, sure. See, like you, um, see, I don't think it was a terrible movie. I think if it was made immediately after the first movie, it would be a great movie. And then if they made no more movies, it's a perfect series. Mm-hmm. The problem is it's 40 years later. And uh, like you said, I think, what, what, first of all, <laughs> the first thing, I, I thought it was watching the wrong movie. Yeah. Because for some reason... All psychiatrists have English accents, which I wasn't aware of. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, as uh, like you said, the first scene they go out into this giant. It's got to be like a football-sized quad of like various maniacs, just like you know, chained to a brick and like set in like this, like you know, in little squares that they can't escape. Yep. That to me was completely yep. ridiculous. Oh, I, agree. I mean, what, you oh, let I these agree. people outside and chain them up, and that helps them somehow. That makes no sense. Yeah, they're like it's like they're getting outdoor time. But you're you're chained into a small square. What what does it matter? So the sun gets on you. Yeah, they want him to get skin cancer too, I guess. <laughs> and then another thing that made no sense was the two people at the beginning of the movie. Again, English accents. I don't understand. Makes no sense to me. Mm-hmm. They were bloggers who did a popular blog about a murderer. Pod- and so one of them Pod- happened to know. Yeah, podcasters. And one they weren't part of the blogosphere, the podcastosphere. <laughs> But uh, one of them had a had the original mask that he got from his buddy at the DA. What the yeah. fuck? Yeah, that was messed up too. 
Um, I guess we'll get into spoilers from from here on out. He, for some reason, both the doctor that's treating Michael Myers and this blogger or this uh, podcaster and his partner are obsessed with hearing him speak. Like, who cares for one? I mean, I guess they want to try to under the I guess the idea of the story is they want to try to understand why he did this. And the the actual answer is there is no reason why he did this. Sure. Yeah, that's the whole premise of the first movie. Right, exactly. But he's got the mask by, you know, holding it in his fist out to Michael Myers, who who doesn't look at him. He's got his back to him. And he's just screaming, say something, say something. And I'm like, what the fuck? Right. And then there's like maybe half a dozen other madmen because who else would they be? Are just kind of like screaming when they see the mask, which... Again, it makes no sense. It's saying it's supernatural, I guess. I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, I, don't, yeah I, don't, I, don't get it, I don't get it either. And that was the other thing is that the um, the original Halloween had no... I mean, the one supernatural element that the original Halloween had is that he got shot a bunch of times, fell off the thing, and ran away at the end, which, yeah, I, believe, which I believe... And don't hold me to this because I'm not sure I'd have to research again. Why would why would we do any research for this podcast? But I believe that was a, a change from the studio at the very end because they wanted to leave uh, room for a sequel open. And I don't think I don't, Carpenter really endorsed that. I'm not 100% sure. I, I vaguely, vaguely remember the, the original Halloween. Mm-hmm. I think at the end you see him dead on a fence post and the second one starts off where they look again and he's gone. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the... Uh, you know the, but this movie, I just at one point it felt like a video game, where it's like, okay, Michael, go kill this uh, this mechanic and get your iconic jumpsuit. Go kill these podcasters and get your iconic mask. Oh, you found a hammer here. Pick this up, beat a woman to death, and get your iconic uh, butcher knife. Uh, right, you, know, you kind of expected like coins to be next to the victim sometimes. Yeah, like it was, it was. I mean, I understand they were kind of going for the random, you know, that he's just a random killer and, and and he doesn't have a plan or anything like that. And he's just randomly killing people. But that makes it seem not random. He wanted he wanted to look like he looked in the original movie. Yeah, like he's the luckiest murderer of all time. Right. And yeah, like the one aspect that I thought could have made this an interesting film is the fact that, you know, he is doing it basically randomly, aside from getting all the stuff to, to um, you know, recreate his look. But, because he, he goes, like, after he kills that, that woman with a hammer, he goes next door and there's a babysitter next door. We don't get to talk to her, we don't get to see her at all. And he basically just stabs her and kills her, and then just moves on. And it's like, right. this is what I do, kind of thing. In the intervening 40 years... Laurie Strode's life has been completely destroyed. Like she's gone, she's gone nuts. Oh yeah, she's severely insane. Like, um, see, I, I'm not as on board with you. I mean, I thought it was a decent movie, but I mean, again, you just have to ignore all the other parts of every movie aside from the first one, mm-hmm. which isn't a bad thing, unless no, you know you're no. like a huge Busta Rhymes completist. <laughs> no, I agree with you. The rest of the movies are. It- Every movie outside of the original movie is, and I don't even like Halloween too, is terrible. Besides Halloween. Do you remember parts of Halloween 2 that were frightening to me as a child? Because on Channel 20, they would show horror movies all the time. Yeah. 
And I think it's part two where at one point he's just drowning someone, but letting them like come get a breath and then drowning them again. It's like the most like disturbing scene. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are some disturbing parts in the, in the second one. And the second one is the second one's a decently made film. It's probably the, the second best one in the series that involves Michael Myers. But, yeah. but you know, I, the, the original movie is almost a psycho homage, like an homage. Like an homage oh, yeah, for psycho. sure. I mean, even the, the psychiatrist's name, Dr. Loomis, is taken from Psycho. Mm-hmm. And then also yeah. stolen in the movie Scream, Billy Loomis is Sam Loomis. Yeah, and, and, the, and you know, Jamie Lee, or, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is, um, oh, I can't think of her name. Uh, Vera DeMille? No, she's the daughter of... Um, Linnea Quigley? No, no. <laughs> Those are good scream queens. But she's but the, she, she's the daughter of um, the woman in Psycho. The one that gets married and the one that gets killed first. Okay, yeah, I don't know. Tony Curtis and... Um, no, Janet Lee. Janet Lee, thank you. Yeah, well, yeah she, she's obviously the biological daughter, but I thought you meant like the character had the same name. No, no, like that... That, I mean, that's that's sort of an homage too, where Carpenter oh, says, sure. "I'll get your daughter to do it." But, uh, but uh, yes, I mean, I like, I was worried that they were going to go the Linda, Linda Hamilton route. Almost so Linda quickly. <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, like, I was worried that what they were going to do was they were going to turn her character, Laurie Strode into Linda Hamilton's character from Terminator 2 where she's she's got all these guns, she's prepared, she's a badass and she's like I'm you know I'm gonna, I'm ready, I'm going to kill you and everything. But they didn't do that thankfully. They they just made her insane. That this yeah. this this trauma ruined her life, ruined um her uh you know her daughter's life. Family, like, her family, she was just like the nutcase essentially. Mm-hmm. And the best scene in the movie Outside of the black kid that comes into the movie for five minutes and steals, steals the entire, the entire show. Oh, show. That kid's hilarious, that Weisenheimer. <laughs> they, he was he was the best part of the movie, but I like the, the dinner scene where they're you know, she comes in and she starts crying and everything. And I thought that Jamie Lady Curtis did some of the best acting of her career in the career. Movie. Oh yeah, I was gonna say, I mean it, movie aside, Jamie Lee Curtis was amazing in this movie. Absolutely. But uh, but yeah, I thought it would be interesting if they they went the route of he doesn't care about her. He's not coming back there to to stalk her because he never tries to. Um, and she's been obsessed with him for the past forty years. I thought it would be it would have been interesting to focus more on on that psychologically. But uh, but they end up really not doing that. Uh, the last part of the movie where they're fighting and everything, I think is is probably the most enjoyable part of the movie to me. But it was so boring getting through everything, because I knew everything what, was going to happen. Oh, yeah, for sure. See, uh, my favorite part, and it's not often that I root for the bad guy, but I was so happy when he killed those uh, podcasters. <laughs> yeah, I just yeah. hated those characters. They were so annoying and like just like intrusive and... They made no sense. It's like, oh wait, it's 2018. Let's have podcasters. Yeah, let yeah the uh, um, yeah podcasters are obviously the most viable vile people in the uh, in the world. For sure. 
including us. But, uh, but yeah, so... Um, I mean, yeah, you and I each tried to kill somebody in a movie theater. <laughs> we were both almost complicit in the death of two people. <laughs> we would have been the movie 16 murderers. Oh, my God. Oh. But, um, but, yeah, I mean... Yeah, you know, yeah, I was I was fine when they killed them. Uh, they they went brutal. I, I'll say that they went. Yeah, I, I like the. I mean, as terrible as it is to say, the violent scenes were pretty, like you know, incredibly shot. They were realistic. I mean, aside from the fact that a guy that stands outside for twelve hours a day, like, has the physicality of like a champion, you know, MMA fighter. Right. <laughs> How old was he in the in the original one? I know he's six when he murders his sister, but how old is he? Like 18, 20? I believe they say that it's. I think they say in the original it's twenty years later, or maybe eighteen years later. So okay, so, so he's twenty. So he's like sixty-four year old man who's just like manhandling everybody. Yeah, because ba- basically, yeah, I believe he's supposed to be in his early to mid twenties. Uh, when he comes back in the original Halloween. So, yeah, timeline-wise, he'd be in his 60s. Yeah, so, I mean, I mean, again, he doesn't seem like he gets a lot of exercise just standing and staring blankly into the sun all day. <laughs> Maybe he's doing isometric exercises. I don't know, but it just is kind of unrealistic. Yeah. I, I didn't think it was a bad... I think you disliked it more than I did, but I'm not a huge horror genre fan, mm-hmm. so... If I just saw the first one and this one, I mean, if they were closer together, it would be a much better movie. I will, I will kind of agree with you on that. I think that, like, I kind of agree with what you said, where if they fil- the, they, you know, they make the original Halloween, and then two years later or whatever, this one comes out, and then they never make any more films, uh, it would probably be satisfying. I, I agree with that. Yeah, even 10 or 15 years later, I mean, that kind of is still, you know, I mean, no, he's in his early 40s. He could still do that. But, I mean, he's a six. I mean, to their credit, I, I like the fact that they never showed his face fully, which is essential to a horror movie. I mean, you can't just show the guy's face. It's just weird to me. Mm-hmm. And then the fact that he's just like, you know, this kind of insane rambling murderer that's, you know, it fits the character. It's not like... Nothing in the movie that happened was severely unrealistic, like, you know, where he gets stabbed a hundred times. He's like, oh, I just stood up. I mean, nothing like that happened. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's, it's not a bad movie, but, I mean, it's clearly playing into the horror tropes at the end. We're like, oh, look, he's not in there the cage the whole time, which makes no sense at all. Yeah. No, I, I agree. And I th- the thing is, is I, I, I think that there were a lot of good ideas in this movie that weren't fully realized and that's kind of my biggest my biggest problem with the movie as far as how everything was shot and things like that it was great i mean david gordon green is a is a very good director uh he's done uh, a he's lot done of, a lot like like what else, what else is he i'm not familiar with his body of uh sequels well he was executive producer for eastbound and down and vice principals well, he, I don't. I don't watch Vice Principal. Eastbound and Down is pretty good throughout. The last episode of Eastbound and Down is probably the funniest season finale I've ever seen. Yeah, and he, you know, he directed episodes of of those shows, and that's like kind of his uh, Danny McBride connection because Danny McBride. Danny McBride yeah, he, he wrote the movie. He was a writer on it too, which kind of makes sense. Yeah, um, but he did 
some smaller movies as far as as writing and directing goes. Um, a movie called All the Real Girls. Uh, Zoe Deschanel was in it, and it's uh, it's kind of a romantic comedy. He d- he's done a lot of I Live in a Small Town, I'm Downtrodden kind of movies. The other stuff that he got in with was he directed Pineapple Express. Uh, and uh, Jimmy McBride. Huh? Another Danny McBride joint. Yeah, yeah. he directed Pineapple Express, Your Highness, and The Sitter. Um, the one with Jonah Hill, but he didn't, he didn't write any of those movies. He just directed them. So he kind of got hooked up with, um, with, uh, Katie McBride and his associates. Yeah. Seth Rogen, those kind of guys, uh, at one point in his career, but the, the stuff he's written has been usually dramatic and, and pretty good. Um, and he's a, he's a good director. So he, I, I, I don't have an issue with the direction of the movie. I just wish they would have gone a little more original with some of their their ideas. And like I said, I think that there were some ideas that were good in the movie that they kind of dropped. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't. The movie looked really well. I don't know who did the cinematography, but it was definitely a dark atmosphere to the whole movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were like maybe the first half hour was in the daylight, and the rest was all like you know pitch black uh the part where the there's an accident and like michael myers escapes that whole scene was kind of like it was creepy you know it wasn't like you know i it's not like i expected the kid to escape without being killed by michael myers mm-hmm. who yeah, can drive yeah. apparently yeah he snapped the neck of like an 11 year old kid that's when i knew i was like okay it's real you know i mean you know like he they're really going for it yeah um oh, what's funny is um the guy who played the sheriff oh what's his name um Will Patton? That's it, Will Patton. <laughs> he was actually... I, I, when I saw him, I immediately thought of the butterfly effect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, 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 not the butterfly effect. The Mothman prophecies. Yeah, I know what you're yeah, talking about. Did we discuss that last time? The uh, the horrifying sequence of the chapstick and the, and the Mothman prophecies? No we, no, we talked about it privately, but we didn't talk about it on the podcast. Yeah, that movie is really creepy. I don't know what it is. That whole movie just creeps me out. Like... I mean, it's obviously supernatural in origin, which, as we've discussed, I'm not a fan of. Mm-hmm. But there's parts of that movie that just like still like make me shiver thinking about them. Yep, you and me both. Like that's another one we watched together, and I was just like, oh, when that that chapstick line where he's you know he's trying to prove, uh, or he's saying you know prove to me that you can that you're supernatural, you can see what I'm doing and stuff. He's like, what am I holding in my hand? And he's got his closed fist, and you just hear over the phone, chapstick. And he opened yeah, it up, and it's in his hand. Like I, may, I remember turning to you, and I was like, "Fuck!" Yeah, yeah. I don't know who directed that movie. That is a fucking creepy ass movie, though. Mm-hmm. But what's weird is I've read a little bit about that, and like the book sounds like insane. Like Indrid Cold is like this like eight foot tall guy in like a silver jumpsuit in the in the book it's based off of. Mm-hmm. It's really weird. Like the whole what is it? Something falls. I don't remember what it is. But yeah, that's that's creepy. And Will Pat- I like seeing actors. He's a good actor. He was in the show, the CIA or the agency was called. Mm-hmm. It was pretty good. It lasted for maybe two seasons. Uh, that was enough. Yeah. Another thing that kind of distracted me, and it's another callback to Always Sunny, <laughs> is um, Jamie Lee Curtis's daughter. She played this character named Fatty Magoo in in uh, Always Sunny. Okay. And the whole time, okay. I couldn't stop thinking about Fatty Magoo. Which, which is kind of funny because I always rip on people like in audiences who can't like divorce a character from their other roles. But the whole time I'm thinking like, oh, that's Fatty Magoo. 
Yeah, it's difficult sometimes. Yeah, she, she's a good. At, I mean, she was good. And I thought the performances were really good. I mean, there were parts like I mean, obviously, like the the podcasters, which kind of reminded me of the movie California. Did you ever see that with uh, yep. Brad Pitt, David yep. Coveney? They yep. kind of reminded me of David Duchovny and his wife's character from that, who were like, um, you know, like investigating murders. I could totally see. But yeah, but, that. yeah, but how they just gave like, like, oh, you know, this mask from this murderer. Here you go, we're friends. That made no sense. Yeah, I know. What I thought would be an interesting, uh, like, take on the whole thing is if, what if instead of like Michael Myers escaping, all those people they showed at like the 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 super. Uh, you know, well-financed uh, asylum they were at, if they just all escaped, and you'd see them all like, going on like, like their insane adventures. Well, that would, that would be an interesting movie. Like the guy with the umbrella? I don't know what his deal was. <laughs> you know, the other thing that annoyed me about this movie was the doctor and the plot twist that the doctor's involved in. Where, and Red Letter Media, I, I won't steal this, Red Letter Media uh, pointed out that basically the whole reason the plot twist exists is to get Michael Myers from where he's at to where Laurie Strode's at because they couldn't figure out a way to get him there since he doesn't really, you know, show any drive to try to find her or really care about her. Yeah, he, he doesn't care about anything. He's an insane murderer. So, you know, they they take this doctor character and they have him... Basically, it's implied, and it was implied early on when he talks about and I caught this while I, was, while I was watching it. I told my wife later after we watched it, or, you know, while we were watching it, actually, um, that I thought that something was going to go on with the doctor. Because at the beginning, he talks about how Michael's getting transferred the day before Halloween again, coincidentally enough. <laughs> um, and uh, that he's upset because he wants him to be in this facility with him and not in, in the maximum security prison, which, you know, he felt wasn't right for him and everything and he seemed oddly protective of him so the plot twist comes in where the sheriff is going to shoot michael myers to death after he's hit him with his car and the doctor doesn't want that to happen and then ends up taking out this knife and stabbing him in the neck and then just stabbing a bunch of times and killing him and he says to michael myers he like picks up michael myers and puts him in the back of his car the back of the back of the police car and he's like, oh, now I know what it feels like, you know, what you feel like. And he kind of tries the mask on everything. And then as soon as they get to, you know, the Strode house, he immediately he, he is immediately killed by Michael Myers. <laughs> and that plot thread's completely dropped. And now Michael's where Lori is. And that's all we that's need all. him for. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, again, I can't praise Jamie Lee Curtis's performance enough. Like, she just comes off as, like, a completely insane person, which is what she is supposed to be in the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a part where she sees him in a window and she shoots it, and, spoiler alert, it's a mirror. But, I mean, just the fact that she would just blindly shoot someone from, like, 50 feet away is just a crazy thing to do. Yeah, and she plays it... The, the, what I love about the way she plays it is that she doesn't play crazy huge, where she's like, oh, ah, I'm nuts, you know, and stuff like that. I mean, you know, that's a uh, exaggeration, but she doesn't play it big like that, and she doesn't play it one note either. You know, there are times when she's sobbing, there are times when she gets really gritty, there are times when she gets distant, and, you know, and you, you know, can see Yeah, she, she, she's an, she has an amazing performance in this movie. Yeah, she's clearly 
the best thing about the movie. Her her perform. I mean, she's not going to get nominated for an Oscar because these movies don't don't the Oscar the the Academy doesn't care about these kind of movies. But she should because she really did an amazing job going back to a character that you know she had portrayed before, but has gone through a ton of changes and able to connect that character that we knew from the first movie to the person that she is now with all these mental problems and inform her character with all of that. I mean, it was a monumental task and she nailed it. Yeah. She, she's great in the movie. I mean, if he said just to watch her performance, her and that, uh, that kid, he was in it for five minutes. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you just take that scene out where you see him interacting with the babysitter and then up to the point where he's like running out of the house, that, that scene, that's, that's a, that's a disturbing part. That whole part where he's like, "Oh, I saw a man," you know, and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's disturbing for sure. But, um, so, but he, like I said, he comes into the movie for five minutes and steals the entire movie for five minutes. Yeah, that, he, that kid's hilarious in the movie. Yeah, and like yeah, that, it was kind of interesting. I don't know if this was done in the earlier movies, but they refer to Michael Myers as the shape. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like when I've looked at I've I look at Wikipedia a lot for movies that I don't really want to see. And like a lot of the, the Halloween sequels were in that list of movies that I'd like to see what happens, but I don't want to actually see them. And that, I mean, that's the one of his nicknames is the Shape. I don't know if they've said that before. I haven't seen most of the movies. They don't call him the Shape, like in the. I'm trying to think. They may have like, they may have kind of offhandedly refer to him as the Shape in a couple movies. Maybe I, I can't really remember but that's how he's credited in the original movie like he's not he's not not credited as michael myers it's credited as the shape and i uh from what i've read i've read a little bit about this and like you said people are just heaping praise on the movie i don't think it's a bad movie i think it's better than the way you think of it but i don't have the you know attachment of all the other halloween movies so i mean i just basically saw the first one and this one I think it's okay. I mean, again, if it was just a direct sequel like 15 years later and that was the last movie, it's great. But I credit John Carpenter for not, you know, stepping into the director role. I guess he had some influence on the movie itself. Mm-hmm. Like, he, I like at the, I guess at one point they were trying to completely recreate uh, Jimmy Lee Curtis's character's house, but he's just like, no, we don't need to do that. He's like, just make your own thing, which is what happened to be like her like ramshackle trap mobile that she lived in. Yep. Yeah, well, he came back and he did the music. Uh, yeah, the music, the music is good. I mean, it's always good. John Carpenter, as a musician, is amazing. I mean, he did the music for this. He probably did the music for The Thing. I mean, mm-hmm. the score is iconic. I mean, if you just hear the opening few notes of the Halloween theme, you're like, oh, shit, Michael Myers. Yeah, and they you know, they don't use that a lot, the the original theme. It's used pretty sparingly in the movie, uh, but he wrote a lot of of good original music that I, I really liked a lot for this for this movie. There are parts... I, I wouldn't say that it's a horrible movie because there are parts of it and, and aspects of it that I really like. Like, I really like the music. I really like Jamie Lee Curtis's performance. Uh, there's a few scenes that I think are, are somewhat interesting. And like I said, I think there are, there are ideas in there that are good. I just think they went... Maybe a little too safe, maybe a little too, but it's, you know, it's one of those things where it's, you know, it it's a good movie for a crowd in a theater. I'm sure that there are a lot of people that are going to watch it in the theater with a bunch of other people around Halloween. And, you know, it's, it's good for that. 
if, you, if you've never seen a Halloween movie, it's probably surprisingly good because, I mean, again, Jamie Lee Curtis is just great. I mean, she does an amazing job. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you don't need to see any of the other movies for this. You don't even need to see the first movie, honestly, for this to to this to make sense or for this, oh, no. for this to be. Yeah, that's always good to have a movie contained entirely within itself. Mm-hmm. But there were some. There were- oh, good. Oh, good. No, oh, you please. There were some things that were um, called back from the original movie, like when she when, it, but it's all inversed, which I thought was also kind of interesting. You know, Jamie Lee Curtis falls off the the second floor of her house, and Michael comes to look, and she's gone, just like he, you know, he was in the in the original. original. Um, yeah, yeah, he did like that part. And I, you know, I noticed that uh, she starts attacking the closet because she thinks he's hiding in the closet. It was interesting that at the end of the movie, she was basically stalking him. Yeah, that was an interesting way to turn around too. But yeah, I mean. At least, at the very least, we could say it's way better than the Rob Zombie remake. Oh yes, for sure. Sure. Did you see that? Yeah, I saw the. I saw. I saw the first one. I don't believe I saw the 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 Halloween two that he made. Yeah, I saw the first one, or more like the first fifteen twenty minutes of it, and I'm like, I don't need to see the rest of this movie. It's terrible, and he's and not the person to make a Halloween movie. To be fair, he's not the person to make any movie. <laughs> Well, I, I definitely agree with you on that. But uh yeah, the Rob Zombie one is terrible. I mean, I don't I don't like I said, outside of the first one and three, I don't really like any of the rest of them. Two is okay. I would put this, you know, I would probably say this is even though I don't like it very much, I'd probably say this is my third favorite Halloween movie. Yeah, that's fair. I mean I, I didn't think it was terrible, but I mean it's completely unnecessary in my opinion. Yeah, well, it'll make, you know, they, they, they've been doing well at the box office. It'll make the money that they wanted to make. And unfortunately, there will probably be sequels from this. from this. Yeah, I just hope Jamie Lee Curtis has, like, some kind of piece of the action on this because she deserves it. She's carried the entire franchise, and even the uh, Busta Rhymes uh, incident. <laughs> yeah. God, Busta Rhymes. That, the Halloween Resurrection was one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. What would you say the worst movie you've ever seen was? Oh, man, that's tough. Uh, You've seen a lot of bad movies. I have seen a ton of bad movies. Maybe The Mangler, which is based on a short story by Stephen King. Uh, Yeah, I haven't seen that one, but I've heard nothing but bad things about that. That was, like, I was probably, when that came out, I might have been 13 or 14 years old, and I went to see it with my sister, who's older than I am, and we watched it, and we both thought it was terrible, because we both like Stephen King, that's part of the reason why we went to see it, and as we were walking out, I saw, like, guys that had brought dates to the movie, more than one, saying, oh my god, I'm so sorry, I didn't know it was going to be like this. So, what's the worst horror movie you've ever seen? Was that, would that be it? Is that even a horror movie? That's probably more of a thriller. The worst horror movie I've ever seen. And there are a lot, a lot of bad ones. Probably maybe the uh, I'm trying to think what the worst slasher movie I've ever seen is. Um, you know which one? It's a cult favorite for a lot of people, but I don't like it. It's um, 
I think it's called uh, Sleepaway Camp. Huh. It's about, uh, it actually stars, this is one of the things that's kind of cool about it. The the killer, the slasher, is a woman. And, um, but, uh, so that, that's like the one thing that it's got going for it. But yeah, it's basically they're in a camp, like a, you know, a sleepaway camp. And um, she's killing all these people. Fair enough. You know, movie is a surprisingly good sequel. You're going to laugh, but it's Blair Witch 2, Book of Shadows. Really? I've never seen that one. Yeah, the Blair Witch movie was okay, but the Blair Witch 2 actually builds upon the mythology, which was the first movie, of course. But they had a lot of videos released after the first movie, and it like if you had watched them all, the second movie it completely like pays homage to them. And it's it's actually not too bad if you have, you're fully aware of the mythology. Interesting. I might have to, to check some of that out. Is it still, uh, like... Are the videos and the background stuff? Because I know there was a big internet push for the Blair Witch and stuff when that came out. Uh, are those uh, still are those... available? I'm not really sure, but they they do like in the first video, the first movie when it came out, they had promotional videos, mm-hmm. and some of those are incorporated, and like especially like the backstory. But uh, what's what I think is interesting is there's this movie called Paradise Lost. Have you seen that? I'm I might have. I mean. It's, is it based on the book or no? No, Paradise Lost is uh, these series of murders that happened in Arkansas. Okay. It's okay. like the West, Memphis, the West Memphis 3. It's a really good movie, but the guy who directed Blair Witch 2 also directed that. And like the first like opening sequence is almost dr- exactly the same. It's really weird, but it's, it's it, I, I liked it. It's a good movie, I thought. Yeah, that's one I'll definitely ha- have to check out. Um, I'm trying to think, like, there's... There's a lot of sequels that that I like. You know, obviously, you know, we could go through uh, The Empire Strikes Back, The Godfather 2, uh, Back to the Future 2. Um, you know, there's there's a ton of them in, in every genre that are good. Um, What's weird is I think horror movies and sci-fi movies actually do pretty well with sequels because generally you want to see what happens after the movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, like you said, back to the, I like Back to the Future two better than the first one. I agree. So do I. The third one is terrible. I like the third one probably a little more than you do, but the third one is clearly the weakest. Oh, I think for sure. Um, but I like uh, Star Trek two, the original Star Trek two, The Wrath of Khan. I think is the best Star Trek movie they've ever made. See, a lot of people, I, I'm a big fan of sci-fi, but I don't care for Star Trek in general or Star Wars. But I think Star Wars is more fantasy than sci-fi. Yeah, I would say so. I'd say so. Because there's not, I mean, yeah, they have like, you know, spaceships and stuff, but they're not really like, you know, a means to an end. They're just like, oh, look, we're in space and we have lightsabers and the faith or the force. You've seen all the Star Wars movies, though, haven't you? I saw the first three. I didn't see. I saw the prequels, which were all really bad. Um, the, the newer prequels. ones, I, I haven't. Yeah, I haven't seen any like the uh, the Force Awakens. I just have no interest. Or like the the is it called Solo? The Han Solo one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that has. I, I have no interest in those at all. Yeah, that's. Uh... Man, we could talk about uh, we could talk about Star Wars probably the. Uh... The sequels, but uh, we probably should start wrapping stuff up. Uh, we've gone off the rails a little bit here again, 
But um, we'll uh, we'll end tonight, uh, as we will end every night now, or every podcast now, with our Norm MacDonald joke of the week. Uh, I've got one. Do you have one? Um, I, I have a lot, but you can go ahead and go. <laughs> So I was watching another thing that I was watching a lot this week and I rewatching actually um, was the Norm MacDonald has a show on Netflix, which is great. Um, I love oh, I love yes. I love how they end the show. They uh, I don't know if you're, I don't aware. Know if you're aware. <laughs> the song. Yeah, but that's a uh, that's a Wayne and um, and Stitcher song or Schuster Wayne and Schuster song. They were like a comedy duo in Canada. Um, when, probably when Norm was, was growing up, but they had a show on CBC and that's how they would end their, their show with that song. Okay. That makes sense. I didn't know that, but that makes sense. But, uh, I was listening to, they're watching the, uh, Drew Barrymore episode. Uh, like I said, I kind of, I went, I'd watched them all before and then I kind of went through them again. But, you know, if you guys haven't seen it, you've got to uh, you've got to check out Norm Macdonald has a show on Netflix. He is a fascinating interviewer. He gets a lot out of his guests, even in a short period of time. All the episodes feel way too short to me because I just, oh, I, just yes. want, I just want more, you know. But he uh, he was talking to Drew Barrymore, and I think this might be my favorite joke of this the, that series that he's done so far. Where and it's a self-deprecating joke too, but she's talking about um, being an actor, and she says, "Well, you know, you're an you're an actor too. You're a good actor." And Norm Macdonald's response is, "Actors look at me the way vampires look at Count Chocula," <laughs> <laughs> and I just I love I love that line. It's so it's so perfect. Yeah, Norm. I mean, he's a gem, obviously. So what's so what, uh, uh, what do you want yours to be for for the week? For the week. See, I was thinking about this earlier, and I, I'm sure you all know exactly where I'm going with. But uh, one of his few impressions that he did was of uh, <laughs> was of David Letterman. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the exact context, but he was talking about like this movie and how horrible it was, and it had Cheech Marin in it. <laughs> yeah. And he goes, "Oh my God, Cheech Marin! That was terrible. You know, you should have got you should have got Chong." <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't even remember what the context was, but just the delivery of the line was like perfect, perfect norm. Yeah, it's it's hilarious because it's it's norm, and it's like kind of in Letterman's voice too, you know, as as part of the impression, and and it's it's completely the type of joke that David Letterman would do. It's hilarious because he goes on and on about how ridiculous it is to have Cheech Marin in this role and how, where he comes from and how he's not, uh, you know, he's not cut out for it and everything. And then the punchline is, well, he should have gotten drunk. Yeah. Or, uh, uh got any gum. <laughs> I have another one, but I'll save it for next time. It's the, uh, Another obviously amazing bit by uh, the great Norm Macdonald. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening to the podcast tonight. Um, we are Massive Late Fee, Mike and Mark. Uh, real quick, I want to thank uh, Jason for you know the music that we used uh, today. Jason does a, an amazing job for us. We'll probably do a kind of a rotating uh, thing of music as it... Uh, as we go on, if you want to find us on Twitter, as I said, we're at Massive Late Fee. Search Massive Late Fee on Facebook to find us there. And if you want to send us any uh, any 
good wishes, any, uh, you know, any uh, love or hate, because I'd love to read hate mail. Uh, Scandinavian countries are disallowed from this. (laughs) Right. We've had enough. Uh, You can... uh, you know, email us at massivelatefee at gmail.com. Uh, real quick, because I had a question on Twitter, too, about this. Uh, we are, we're up on Google Play now. We'll be up on Apple iTunes as soon as Apple iTunes is finished with their verification process, which probably take a couple days. So by the time our next episode drops, you should be able to find us on Apple iTunes. We'll be up on Spotify, too. Uh, and obviously, you can find us at michigansportsandentertainment.com. And you can find us over on YouTube at Michigan Sports and Entertainment or just search Massive Late Fee and uh, our, our uh, stuff should come up. So, uh, you know, another good conversation, Mike. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you next time. Say goodbye, Mike. Take care.